That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Daughters, you hear about me talking about the three girls all the time. One of them is a sophomore in college. Can't believe it. When I first started this radio show, I can remember referring to her as the five-year-old or the six-year-old. Maybe some of you remember that. And over the years, uh, we we uh, eventually evolved into a she's in middle school, she's in high school, and and whatnot. But uh, she's in college now, and, and the younger two sisters are seven and about to be nine. I'm just going to call them seven and nine because uh, that's about what they are. That's what they would correct me with. They had a fun run today, and it struck me today. I can remember going to the fun run. Do you know what a fun run is? I mean, there's nothing. There's probably really, if we're just talking and the kids aren't listening, there's probably nothing fun about what they're doing. It has to do with a fundraiser at their school. They have them run laps. Most of the kids will sprint the first lap uh, against better judgment, against medical advice, AMA. They will sprint the first lap and then uh, then figure out pretty quickly that they're going to have them run for 20 minutes. Uh, even though the teachers are saying, pace yourselves, pace yourselves, the kids don't do it. But over the years, you watch them grow up. And maybe your kids have left the, uh, left the nest. Maybe they've gone off to college. Maybe you've done the dorm drop-off. I was talking to Rob Mullins, University of Oregon athletic director, earlier this week. His oldest will be going off to college going off to study, and, you know, he was saying, you know, what is that like? I can't believe that it went so fast, and I think it's really relatable stuff. And, you know, I gave Mullins a little bit of advice, and whether he wanted it or not. I I said to him, you know, the interesting thing when we watch kids grow, whether they are moving from elementary school to middle school or middle school to high school or high school off to college, or military service, or a job, or leaving college to go into the real world. The children, the kids, are always looking forward. They're all, they have to be. Their heads have to be up. Their eyes have to be up. You cannot run. I guess you could run a marathon backwards. Uh, I've heard about people doing this. I interviewed a guy one time who ran a marathon backwards. But i got to guess the guy was looking over his shoulder or having somebody spot for him. But kids are looking forward. They're, they're looking into the horizon. So when they're leaving elementary school, they may be apprehensive about middle school, but they're looking towards middle school. When they leave middle school, they're looking towards high school. And the rest of us get all wispy. And I don't remember having like a graduation ceremony in kindergarten and in sixth grade or fifth grade and then eighth grade. And I do remember graduation ceremonies in high school and college. But nowadays, I think we are celebrating every milestone. And, uh, you know, I don't know how that sits in your family. It's a little bit participation, uh, you know, medal-worthy or participation award-worthy. But 
you know, you're moving on to the next stage. It should be celebrated. You're growing. Parents appreciate that. But I can remember being wispy, you know, saying uh, as my oldest went off to high school, saying, man, I've got a high schooler now. And then she left high school. And I said, gosh, you know, dropping her off at the dorms. My eyes are glassy. And but but only because I'm looking backwards. Right. I'm looking back. I'm looking back at high school. I'm looking back at kindergarten. I'm looking back into their childhood, and I'm going, man, where has the time gone? And they're always looking forward. And, in fact, I was talking to my 20-year-old today. This morning, I just, on a whim, got in the car, drove to Corvallis. She was on campus. Uh, you know, she. Uh, some people may know she ran for student body vice president on campus there and she was being inaugurated today. And I surprised her by showing up to the inauguration and just seeing her inaugurated, giving her a hug. And then I got back in the car and I drove the hour and 45 minutes back to the studio. And and it was really cool for me to do that. But on the drive there, I talked to a dad who uh, is going to see his daughter married in eight days. I texted a little bit with another father whose kid is going off to college and is stressed about that. And I'm here to tell you, parents, that it's not unlike your sports teams. Like, don't we do the same thing with our children that we do with our sports teams? We look into the history of the franchise. We're always looking back. Blazer fans, you're looking back at 1977. You're looking back at Brandon Roy going, what would have happened if his knees would have been right? You're looking back at the draft that netted the Blazers' Sam Bowie instead of Michael Jordan going, well, what if, what if, what if? You know, Maurice Lucas, Bill Walton, even Damian Lillard's early years. You look back, back, back. And I think the franchises need to be looking forward, right? They have to be. They should be like our children, looking into the next thing. And I'm here to tell you, it, when you make that realization as a parent, and I taught, told Rob Mullins, the Oregon AD, this. I said, when you are dropping that kid off, I want you to remember the kid is looking forward, hopeful, excited about the next chapter. You're looking back going, what happened to the kindergartner? I'm dropping off this kid at high school or college now. And I think it gets you, it gets all of us a little bit wispy. It gets us a little bit nostalgic. Um, it, uh, you know, ends up, uh, ends up being like kind of a sad thing, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, all of us going, you know, hey, it's, uh, it's a sad thing. Kids leaving home. And really what we should be doing like we do with our sports franchises, and maybe this is the time of year to do it. It's June the 1st. Some of you have kids that are graduating and leaving the nest. Some of you have kids that are just matriculating to the next level here in the next couple of weeks. If you live out of state in a place like Arizona, you're already into summer vacation. You were a couple of weeks ago in May. And it, it just a reminder today that our, your sports franchises and your children need to be focused on the future. It's okay to look back. It's okay to miss the kindergartner. It struck me today as I watched my kid. She's giving a speech, and I'm looking at her going, man, the thing that blew me away is I still see her as a 6-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old playing volleyball. And here she is, you know, giving a speech in which she's talking about the vision for the campus and how all students matter. And, you know, and I'm going, wow, like, who gave her those words? She came up with those words on her own? She wrote that speech, and now she's performing it? Um, it's just a reminder, like look into the future a little bit. It's okay to be wispy. It's okay to get glassy eyed, but look into the future a little bit. We got a great show for you today. Sally Jenkins is coming up in a few minutes. Washington post sports columnist, fantastic author. Um, I am related to her by marriage. 
Uh, she is coming on the program to talk about a book she's written. I don't know if you know this, but the month of June is the biggest month when it comes to sports books being sold. You know why? Because of Father's Day. She's written a book called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. Sally Jenkins will be joining us coming up uh, in just a few minutes. In the 4 o'clock hour, we will be visiting with a guest who has done a whole bunch of 30 for 30 documentaries. Steve James did, you know, 30 for 30 documentaries on all sorts of topics. He's got one coming out on Bill Walton. And it's going to be really interesting to see what this documentary looks like and, and uh, you know, what, uh, how much Bill Walton, you know, sort of the groovy old Bill Walton who we've had on the show, how uh, he is sort of captured in a documentary form. But Steve James is a really good story. He did Hoop Dreams. You may remember that. He, he has now done The Luckiest Guy in the World. It's a documentary on deadhead Bill Walton. And the uh, broadcast premiere of that documentary is coming up here in five days. It's a four-part series. First two episodes will air uh, as an ESPN 30 for 30. And then the next two episodes will air a week later on June 13th, uh, 5 o'clock Eastern time. Steve's going to be joining us uh, to talk about the documentary process, what drew him to Bill Walton. And I have to know, like, how much of this documentary deals with, uh, you know, maybe Walton's connection to portland the state of oregon i don't know but uh really good stuff uh as bill walton is you know bill walton's been on a trip for years and we love having him on the show i love having him on the show and it's not because i get to take a day off when he comes on the show you know i ask him a question and then i just kind of sit back and uh, let bill walton go for a while that's not why i i like bringing him on the show because uh you know you guys i think he entertains people i think he's polarizing to a certain extent but I think he entertains people. I think he's interesting. I think he is uh, often uh, often wild in his in his uh, comments and commentary. And I think he's very candid sometimes about you know what it is uh, to be Bill Walton and uh, and what it is to live in this world. You know, and he's he's a uh, groovy groovy character, and I love having him on the show. So Bill Walton will be with us uh, coming up on. Uh, on the program, uh, not Bill Walton, but the documentary on Bill Walton will be with us in the 4 o'clock hour. I'd love to get Walton back on. He, I saw him at Bill Shonley's funeral. He sat in front of me at the funeral. And I thought to myself, wow, like how cool was that that he came back, even though we all kind of know that, you know, he's busy. He was broadcasting basketball at the time when Shonley passed away. And I think it was really kind of a cool thing for Walton to come back and uh, be part of the radio program and uh, be part of the Bill Shonley tribute at that time. I also think it was cool in April of 2020 when we brought Walton on the show and he just gave us a pep talk. Like, he literally went into, like, Bill Walton, give us a pep talk. We will get by. We will survive. We are alive. Just think about those moments, you know, when it's tough. When you're on the bottom of a long, hard climb, when you don't know how the game is going to play out, but you look around and you see who's there and you see who's on your side, we are Oregon. 
we are going to get this done. We are the luckiest people in the world. We are alive. We can make a difference. Here we go, John. Much love, eternal gratitude, shine on, heal on, ride on, play on, carry on, Oregon on, BFT on, yes, Canzano on. Thank you, John. Bill Walton on. Stephen, what do you think it is about Walton that resonates with people? He he seems very – it's tough to say because it's like, you know, he's he's out there, right? And I think that's right. what it is. He's out there, but he also seems somewhat like he'd be a really fun person to hang out with because, <laughs> like, you know, not just, like, the party scene, but just, like, the, the whole talking to him. He has so many theories and thoughts on any to- any topic you want. You could talk to him about anything, and he would have an opinion on it. And I think for that reason, like, that's why I really enjoy him because I love when he goes off on tangents – of about not even sports i love to hear his thoughts on just everything and i think that's why i like him is because he's a he's a guy that knows a little about a lot and uh, you don't really hear that a lot like a lot of people know a lot about a little he knows a little about a lot yeah and i think too he's you know he could talk like you said he could talk about a whole bunch of different things and he's got opinions he's got like real opinions on a whole variety of things now i don't agree with everything bill walton says i think you would be on an acid trip if you did but I find him during a broadcast interesting because I can see the game. If I'm watching the game on television, I can see the game. I'm watching the game. I know the action. I have the score in front of me. I have the clock in front of me. Every once in a while, he will make a point about basketball. But a lot of it is him talking about going to the hot springs and him talking about you know what makes a good passer and him telling a story about Dr. Jack Ramsey. And I know it drives some people crazy. I know it drives some people crazy to see that, you know, he's not talking about the game in front of me. But it doesn't bother me as much. And I think he is a polarizing figure. Um, And I love having him on. I He loves being on the show. But here's another thing that Walton does that people don't know about. When I interview him, because I have often had him in studio or on a taped interview where, like, we're taping at a time that's convenient for him. And then a couple of few other times I've had him on live. So I get a very different experience each time. Well, I, I was standing the last time I saw him at the Arizona State-UCLA basketball game or Arizona State-USC game. I can't remember which one it was. In Tempe last season. I brought this radio show to Tempe. We broadcasted from the Arizona State campus, and I went to the basketball games. And right before the game began, before he goes on TV, Bill Walton does this thing where he kind of gets his uh, zen going. Do you know what I'm talking about, Stephen? You ever seen an actor who kind of goes into a into a trance right before they go on camera or right before they go out for a play onto the stage? Yeah, you got to psych yourself up. I mean, it happens in sports. You know, it happens, yes. I, think, I think, everywhere, even just a regular job. Like, you, sometimes you have to psych yourself up to just go to your job. So, yeah, I totally get that. He will stretch out a little bit. He will start to make weird sounds, weird, weird sounds, and he does things like he will start to clear his voice and go, oh, like he's clearing his throat, he's clearing his nasal passage. He's do, he sounds like a pterodactyl as he's doing this, and I've seen him do it, and I have heard him, and in fact, when I've done taped interviews with him, he'll say, hold on a second, and then I can hear him go into this thing. And he's just like, he's getting warmed up. He told me, I said, what are you doing? And he says, I'm warming up my vocal cords. I'm getting ready to enunciate. I'm getting ready to, you know. And then he goes into full 
Bill Walton mode as he's talking about riding his bicycle over the Broadway Bridge and right into downtown Portland and Mount Hood in the background and, you know, Rip City sitting in front of him. And it's all kind of a, a show to some extent, but also really, uh, really kind of only Bill Walton could do that. And why is he not doing that before he gets on the call with me? I don't know. Why is he not doing that in some back hallway of the arena, right, right there on press rows when he when he does it? Um, maybe he wants us all to know how seriously he takes broadcasting. I don't know, but uh, I like Bill Walton. I like Bill, some Bill Walton in my life. A couple things I want to hit before Sally Jenkins comes on the show. Uh, a lot of reports out there about Colorado and a bunch of smoke and all this stuff. I have been running down these leads. I continue to be told that everyone in the Pac-12 is together and aligned. The Colorado Chancellor, uh, as recently as today, has indicated they are in with the Pac-12. They're just waiting for a deal to be put in front of them. I know that the Big 12 people are uh, waving the pom-poms and getting excited and hopeful and anticipation of the potential demise of the Pac-12 conference, all of that gloom and doom stuff. But, uh, you know, my friends, my family members, other media members who are asking me what's going on with Colorado, I'll tell you right now what I know. I, I believe Colorado, all things being equal or even a la- little bit less, Colorado would prefer to be in the Pac-12 conference. I think Colorado, like a lot of other universities, is doing their due diligence. I think they are perhaps placating Coach Prime by, um, you know, publicly talking about uh, you know, hey, this is uh, still up in the air, and, you know, we're going to do what's best for Colorado. And I think, you know, it's no secret. I think Coach Prime would like to recruit the state of Texas. But uh, we'll we'll update you when there's something to update you. But I literally have a text that just came in during this segment that said that there is nothing new on Colorado or any of the Four Corners schools. Everyone is together. Everyone is aligned. Everyone wants to be with the Pac-12. Of course, all the schools need to see a deal in front of them before they will sign on for good. That is obvious. But um, I'm not making too much of the cartwheels coming from the Big 12 footprint. All right, coming up, Sally Jenkins, Washington Post sports columnist. She's going to be with us to talk about her book. You're looking for a great Father's Day book. Sally Jenkins has, has it. And, you know, what is it like to be the daughter of a sports writing legend? Dan Jenkins, great golf writer, great you know, college football writer, one of the original pioneers of, of modern-day sports writing. That's her dad. Sally's going to join us to talk about her new book and life in the business. Leave it here. Sally Jenkins is uh, our guest in this next seg- segment. The month of June, I, I, I always tell people I, I like to do book recommendations. I like to bring authors on in early June because everybody's looking for what? A Father's Day book, right? Well, I've got a good one for you. It's called The Right Call. Sally Jenkins has written it. She is a fantastic sports writer. I think she's the best sports columnist in America. She's at the Washington Post. I think you should read every word that she writes, especially if she's writing a book. Now, The Right Call is about what sports teaches us about work and life. We talk about this stuff all the time on the show. What do I do? I start today's show by talking about how our sports teams are like our children. They should be looking forward. It's okay for us to get nostalgic and look backwards. We can get wispy and glassy-eyed. You can think about the 77 Blazers or the the Ducks in 2015 you want or Oregon State winning back-to-back championships at the College World Series. That's okay, but the teams can't afford to do that. They need to look forward. Sally Jenkins is joining us. 
I'll get off my soapbox. Sally, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You love I, having you I, on. I like that. I like that. Children and teams. Yes. That's your next book. There yeah. it is. <laughs> the the right <laughs> call. Tell us what you know. What what prompted you to to write this book, The Right Call? You know what did it was just the the realization after so many years of covering you know athletes in big events, the realization that like even a Steph Curry. Uh, you know, as intuitive and inspired seeming as he may may appear in the moment, he's making micro decisions, right? Uh, when to take the shot, what shot to take, you know, to go to my left, go to my right. You know, all of those things are micro decisions. And I just have been uh, increasingly fascinated over the years with how athletes, great athletes, manage to make more right decisions than than wrong decisions under pressure, Right. So pressure is the most common experience in the world. We spend a lot of time wondering how what athletes do could possibly apply to us. You know, are they just there to awe us and entertain us? Um, or can we learn something from them? I mean, that's the $64,000 question. And in watching, you know, these people, it just occurred to me, like, the one thing we can really take from them is what are their methods for dealing with pressure and making good decisions under pressure? I love that you have like Steve Kerr, Pat Summit, Peyton Manning, Michael Phelps, Agassi, Bill Belichick. You know, blend that all into it. But you're, you've been in those locker rooms, you've been in those news conferences, you've been in those high pressure situations, watching them all. Does it jump out at you? Like, when, are you having this conversation like over dinner, and then you go, "Hey, this should be a book." Yeah, I mean, you know, there's just such a broad cross section there, right? I mean, it occurred to me. You know, the the Washington Post has sent me to 10 Olympic Games and a bunch of Super Bowls and, you know, British Opens. And I, I wanted to see what roads intersect between these athletes and these coaches. I mean, I've interviewed them all, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's a fact. Like, I've talked to Bill Belichick. I've talked to Steve Kerr. You know, I've had dinner with Andre Agassi and Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. So I wanted to see, okay, well, where are the intersections in how they go about their business you know does Laird Hamilton do some of the same things that Steph Curry does or Michael Phelps or uh, Patrick Mahomes and the answer is yes you know so I started making a list of those things and those things turned into chapters you you know you right yeah go ahead you, yeah well so one of the things that uh, that also occurred to me was that we use a lot of buzzwords in sports you know conditioning practice discipline you know, we talk in those terms all the time uh, and, you know, bringing my A game, but we don't really unpack them in a specific way. You know, what is the winning culture really? I mean, what is culture, period, you know, with a capital C? So I try to really explain these principles in a very granular way using examples direct from athletes and coaches. In the prologue to the book, you have this great exchange with Michael Phelps which I never thought about, you know, I, I'm in the water swimming. It feels like an eternity, Sally. Like, you know, I'll be in there swimming. I think I've been there for 20 minutes. It's like four minutes. And I'm going, what are the swimmers doing when they're swimming? But you you talk to Phelps during a race. Is he counting strokes? Is he counting laps? Is, and what did you learn from him in that in that exchange? Yeah, he's not counting. I mean, he was like, count what? And I'm like, well, you know, strokes to the wall. He was so well-conditioned, and conditioning is, again, one of those vague terms we don't really define. Conditioning is actually a deep neurological uh, process. When you condition, you're basically improving the efficiency and the basic operating 
system uh, in your body. And Phelps was so grooved on such a deep neurological level that he was like a great pianist who doesn't, you know, who memorized the piece so well, he doesn't have to read the music, right? Um, Phelps could just feel in the water where he was, and it accounts for the single greatest uh, decision he ever makes. And again, even a Michael Phelps in a 100-meter butterfly makes decisions. The best decision Phelps ever made in his career was the decision against Michael Kavich in the 100-meter butterfly at the Beijing Olympics when the gold medal all-time record is on the line. Phelps decides to what they call chop the wall, which was to take a very one last half stroke rather than just glide to the wall, and he beats Cavett by one one hundredth of a second. Uh, it's it it seemed like an infinitesimal you know split second reaction. It was in fact a decision, and a decision he was able to make because he was so well conditioned. Sally Jenkins with us. The book's called The Right Call. Washington Post sports columnist, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, all right, let's uh, apply this to your life, Sally. Uh, you're on deadline. You're in the press box. You're at a big event. You know, can you draw upon what you learn from athletes and coaches to to perform your job? Yeah. So this is this is really the point of the book. You know, what what can those of us who work at desks, you know, sitting there from the neck up, you know, what can we pull from? What's exportable from the experience of a Michael Phelps or, you know, uh, somebody, you know, a Steph Curry? And and the answer is that just by borrowing from a few of their methods, you, you, can, you can learn to deal with pressure better in your own life. And if you doubt um, that pressure has actual physical properties, uh, take a look at chess grandmasters and what happens to their bodies in a tournament. A chess grandmaster can burn like thousands of calories in a tournament. Like they all lose weight um, because your body is working quite strenuously even when you're just sitting. Um, you know, thinking and trying to solve hard problems. And so one of the things you can do to deal with that kind of pressure better uh, is basically, you know, prepare uh, better and have some things at your disposal. So, for instance, like if it's a deadline, uh, Super Bowl, you've got 90 minutes to write a 1,000 words. I'm a much better writer if I've already got 500 words pre-written that I can pull from from you know if i've gone through all the interviews with patrick mahomes during the week and found comments from him that i that i am pretty sure are going to hold up when the game is over some observations you know like i'm just a better writer under deadline and the pressure of the moment is not affecting me so badly you know i mean one of the things to understand about pressure uh, no matter what you do um, for a living is that you know, when you're feeling pressure, your body is sending blood from your uh, small, fine muscle groups to the large ones in the fight or flight response. And so you lose fine motor control. So something like typing actually gets physically harder because you have less blood in your fingers. Once you're sort of aware of those physiological reactions uh, from pressure, as athletes are, it just makes you better at dealing with it. You understand what's happening in your body and your mind a little bit better, and so you can mitigate. Book is going to be officially released on June 6th, so coming up in five days, uh, just in time for Father's Day for people who are looking for a gift. On that note, Sally, like, you know, I, I think I've read all your books. My favorite, The Real All-Americans, Carlisle Indian School. I think if, if you're looking for a Father's Day book, that's a good one as well. Do you have a favorite, like, because the Pat Summit books, the Dean Smith book, you know, you go back to even Lance Armstrong. Do you have a favorite? 
Yeah, you know, The Real All-Americans is my favorite just because it was such a labor of love. Uh, and, and you know, it's a true story about uh, the Carlisle Indian School and how they really pioneered the forward pass and what what really we all love about the, the modern NFL, the, the, the great offensive strategies of today were born at the Carlisle Indian School. So that was sort of like uncovering this beautiful mosaic that had been kind of buried. It was like archaeology. So I really love that book. I love doing it. It was like time travel, you know. Um, uh, but I love this book, too, uh, partly because I do love uh, so many of the people in it. I mean, Pat Summit is in it. She was a, a great, great friend as well as a collaborator on three books. Uh, Dean Smith was a collaborator. I worked on his book. Uh, you know, I really um, admire and was deeply influenced by people like Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova as a young sports writer. Um, so, uh, you know, this kind of the right call is is kind of the, a, a summary, you know, almost of all the stuff I've learned from these people over the years. Yeah, and I can feel you, you know, drawing on Tony Dungy, Tom Brady, you know, Peyton Manning. Uh, for people who love sports, this is going to be a great book. Uh, I'm mentioning athletes and coaches. You know, we're watching college sports change dramatically, the money and television driving so much of it. Um, are the athletes in your mind changing, or is good athletic competition, the things that made athletes great once upon a time, is that a universal theme that, you know, continues to, to uh, permeate in sports? I don't think athletes are changing. I just think they're getting more ownership. You know, self-ownership is a really big deal. I mean, you know, we're 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 entering, I think, finally at long last, and it's highly welcome to me. We're we're about to enter an era where athletes uh, become owners of entire teams. You know, I mean, here we have Tom Brady buying into the Raiders. You know, we've got, I mean, LeBron LeBron James. I mean, Magic Johnson is buying into the Commanders, right? The Washington Commanders. He's going to be part of the the. Uh, the NFL ownership group um, for the Washington Commanders. I, I really, it was it was a very very rare thing that a former athlete become an owner. Uh, it, it, it's it's been a long time coming, and it's high time. Uh, the owner, the billionaire owner clique in the NFL and the NBA, uh, that need that that's a dinosaur generation thing that needs to pass. You know, and we need to enter this new era where. You can, as a child, take up a sport, devote your entire life to it, and then uh, when it's over, you know, not fall into unemployment, not fall into, um, you know, needing Medicaid to pay for your joint replacement, but rather fall into a lifelong career like the rest of us, you know. If you have a craft and a devotion, if you're an artist or uh, a musician, you, you know, you, you hopefully can find some way of lifelong employment in, in your chosen art. You know, athletes haven't had that, and they deserve it because it's a form of genius, you know. Uh, it, 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 they should be able to have lifelong livelihoods at their, at their genius. The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. Sally Jenkins, the author, on sale June 6th. Sally, um, you know, as I'm going through and reading an excerpt of the book and looking at sort of the uh, the bullet points on the book, I'm curious, you know, how do you know what to leave out of the book? Because your career, <laughs> the length of it, you know, the cutting room has to look amazing. Yeah, you know, my dad, who was a great sports writer, Dan Jenkins, always, he worked at Sports Illustrated for over 20 years, and he used to tell me, you can tell the strength of a piece by what lands on the cutting room floor. You know, if it's just painful to cut, 
you know your material is pretty strong. Um, and it, it felt that way. I mean, there's some stuff that, that I ended up cutting from the for space or uh, because it just didn't quite, you know, work um, that uh, that I regretted. And so, um, but nothing goes to waste. It'll wind up in a column for the Washington Post, you know. Uh, but um, but yeah, it's 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 hard to cut. It's like it's 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 difficult, you know. Um, there's a lot of thoughts and people um, crowding through, all trying to crowd through the same door. You've got Marvis Frazier. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Go was, ahead. Yeah, like you. I mean, you're the same, John. We've you know we've we've crossed paths at events all over the world. You know, who are some of your like you you. You, you surely have people that have just made an impression on you, right? No matter how cynical we want to be about these folks, um, in, in, in some way they end up writing us a little bit, right? They make yeah. an impression on us. Yeah, 100%. Like I had this conversation with Bill Plaschke one year because he, looked, he grabbed me at the end of the year and he said, you know, you and I were at the Olympics, we were at the World Series, the Super Bowl, the Final Four, the Kentucky Derby, the Belmont, and he said, he said what did you learn? And I said – there are no accidents. Winning is not accidental. Like, and the winners often had trials and tribulations, and but they just handled it differently from the franchises that that said, "Oh no, they threw their arms up. This, we we can't go on. We've had a major injury." Uh, the winners just reacted differently. And I, at the end of the even, you know, even the horses that you see at the end of the year that get to the Derby, you go, "There's a great story in every stall," and there's a winning yeah. story in every stall and how they arrived there. And I think. That same stuff, I think, can apply to us in real life. I've said that on this show a number of times, that, like, bad things happen. How do you deal with it? How do you pivot? You know, the Patriots, you know, Antonio Brown's a problem. What do they do? What do they do that the Raiders don't do? You know, how do they, you know, how does that situation end up, you know, not derailing one team but derailing another? And I'm always, I'm, I'm fascinated by the kind of the sociology of it. That's so well said. You know, I mean, I, 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 there's an entire chapter uh, in the right called "Devoted to Failure" because, like, so here's like you've seen this as well as I have. At the Super Bowl, when you go down the roster of the Super Bowl teams, you can't help noticing that, like, literally half of a 53-man roster, half of those guys weren't even drafted. Right? There's always like 20 to 25 undrafted free agents on a Super Bowl roster. So the field is literally littered with failures uh, at the Super Bowl. The rest of us aren't that cognizant of that. The fact, the degree to which uh, really good athletes and really good teams have a tolerance for setback, right? Uh, they're just they're more resilient. Uh, the, the the really good ones. Uh, and they don't they, they, they don't just, dwell on it either. No. They don't dwell on the mistake or the and, or the and injury. And, yeah, and you'll you'll know this too, right? Like, you, I, I bet you agree. If you hear a team or a coach after a tough loss bitching about the officials, you can be sure they're going to lose again the next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're looking for they're looking for they're looking outward instead of inward. Uh, Sally, let me ask you this, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, but your dad's a legend in the industry. And I and before the last segment, I said you know modern sports writers, you know he's he's on you know he's on the wall of fame. You know he is. He is one of the pillars. Uh, you know, you grow up listening to your dad on a typewriter in the other room typing. You know, and we've seen people like, you know, Marvis Frazier tried to box. Frank Sinatra Jr. tried to sing. Sally Jenkins, you are like the number one sports columnist in America. You have achieved <laughs> to the level of what your father achieved. That 
you know, I know you're not going to take a victory lap, but I'm going to give you one here. That is a remarkable thing for you to grow up watching dad and then rise to his level. I don't, well, first, I, I don't know that I agree with the premise, number one, but thank you. <laughs> uh, but, second, but secondly, it's kind of like a race car family, right? I mean, uh, you know, I just, I grew up in the trade, right? I grew up at the racetrack. I didn't know how to do anything else. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Austrians grow up skiing. You know, I just was, I mean, I went to my, my dad took my brothers and I in the summers uh, on the road with him. So my my first golf tournaments were god i mean i was literally you know i was i was seven and eight years old at golf courses and and my first british open i was 11 uh trevino beat jack nicholas to prevent a grand slam i mean uh that's just i grew up steeped in it is the only thing i can say uh so it was a tremendous advantage and i grew up like you say watching a master at work i mean pat mahomes has talked about the advantage he had growing up watching you know his father was a you know, a ball player, a major leaguer, and he he watched the habits. Uh, Mahomes watched the habits that made uh, success, and they're not. It's carpentry. It's not. You're not. It's not being kissed by God with some fortunate talent. I mean, it is pounding nails into a board. Um, I think any athlete would tell you that. I mean, you know, Mahomes Mahomes signs one of the greatest, the richest contracts in history, and part of what he does with the money is uh, install a 50 yard. Uh, uh, playing field in his backyard so he can practice more I mean, <laughs> yeah. anyway um it, the point being point being uh you know my career i wasn't born a sports writer i it's a it's a product of work and agency you know just like any of the athletes we cover the right call what sports teach us about work and life it's out on the 6th of june think about it for a father's day gift sally jenkins uh thank you for joining us I will see you this summer. Uh, we're all looking yes, forward to will. seeing you guys. Sounds uh, great. All right. Can't wait, Take John. care. Okay. All right. Take there care. she goes. Thanks. Sally Jenkins. There she goes. Uh, Stephen, we got to talk about this interview just for a second. Um, and, uh, you know, it's – I talk about this stuff all the time. I'm glad she wrote the book, but I'm excited to read it. I'm going to buy you a copy, you know, for Father's Day. I'll get you a copy. Oh, thank you. But uh, I, I'm just interested to see, like, Bill Belichick, you know, Pat Summit, the late Pat Summit. What are the things that she drew from that? Uh, I don't know. Did you geek out on that interview like I did? Yeah, like the fact that, you know, when she goes into the, the science of it, right, and how every single decision that is made on the field, on the court, like, it's a calculated one. And I think, like, because for me, you know, a lot of people – will argue just like, well, if these guys just work harder, every person that is a professional athlete, they, they have the God given talent. Now yeah. to be the next level, they have to do the next stuff. Like she said, Patrick Mahomes, practicing more, just doing more research, doing more science, doing the science of it. That's, that's what sports is about and to become one of the best ever. And I think she touched on that. Like we really underestimate how special these people are that are the best in their sport, but how much work they actually put in and the little stuff they do just to make themselves get better. It, it is amazing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she touched on that, and she, she hit it out of the ballpark and that, on that stuff, and I love that kind of thing. All right. Coming back, I want to ask you, because you were with the Blazers, Damian Lillard, all the Blazers you saw come through in your time, what made Lillard different? I'm going to ask Stephen that next. I'm efforting a whole bunch of uh, athletes and coaches in the coming weeks. Stanford football coach Troy Taylor on, uh, on my to-do list as far as getting interviews. As is Shadur Sanders, the Colorado quarterback. 
Um, I want to talk about Colorado in the 4 o'clock and or 5 o'clock hour. Did anybody else think that the rest of the coaches in the Pac-12 have heard about enough about Colorado? Uh, Cute story, but I'm kind of wondering if Oregon, USC, some of the teams that play Colorado this season, particularly in the early part of the conference schedule, I'm wondering if they are especially eager to play Colorado. I'll tell you what I mean by that in the 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock hour. I just I think it's chapping some coaches and some people who recruit in the Pac-12 conference. Steven, I asked you before the break. You, you saw Blazer players come and go, and your time working for the Blazers. Um, tell the listeners what you were doing, what capacity you were working in. Uh, yeah, so when I was with the Blazers, I was in the scouting department, uh, technically a video analyst. Uh, but I did a couple other things with them as well. But uh, so what I would do is I would basically do the like initial scouting for upcoming opponents. So you know, say they played the Denver Nuggets uh, within the next week, I would watch uh, you know the past five to seven games by myself of the Nuggets and track kind of what plays they were running, um, how they were playing yeah. their defense, which direction is going, all that kind of stuff. Um, kind of doing like the initial breakdown of it all. And so we'd just do that throughout the season um, for basically every single regular season game and then playoff game. Uh, in the season, then also I would do some live stuff as well, you know, checking on just how they're playing defense, if they're contesting right, um, those type of things. Give me an idea. When you get this job, do you immediately, are you like, oh, yeah, of course they do all this stuff? Or were you surprised by the depth and the level of uh, sort of uh, attention to detail that was going on? I was surprised. You know, I, it's one of those things where, yeah, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, of course they're doing all this stuff. But at the time, it's like, wow, like they really go in depth and they have a lot of people doing this and they have a lot of things, like specific things that they are looking for. And that's the thing. I mean, if you're off by a, an inch of where the player is, like they will correct you and they say, no, you have to you have to judge it this way. And so it takes it's very meticulous um, it's very repetitive, but at the same time, like it is a science and it is a system that they had of how they wanted their plays tracked and how they felt like their theories on basketball was. So it was very, very interesting to me in that way that it is so particular of what they want and they will let you know if it's wrong and then you got to fix yourself that way. So it's, it's one of those things like I go back to, it's a science and it's a, you know, a sports science right there that it to be great. And I think Dame, you talked about Dame being it like, he's the one of those guys that is always watching film. And he said this before. He's like, I love basketball. Like, this is what I do. I watch basketball all the time. And I think that's the type of thing is all this information is out there and the team provides it. Do you look at it? Do you study it? Do you want to get better? And I think Dame is a great example of that because he's not the biggest guy. You know, he's lost a step athletically, but he's still explosive. He's figured out ways to do it. And a lot of it is by scouting, just by doing the easy stuff that seems so easy that you would say, oh, if I was a professional athlete, I'd be studying all the time. Dame does it. And that's why he's been so good in his career. Give me an idea, though. Did you ever have athletes who came in that, you know, didn't put in that work or didn't understand the value of that work? Or do they all get it? No, they definitely don't all get it. And I think especially for basketball, you see this a lot and, you know, with the AAU system, the way it is, you're how good you're told how good you are all the time. You see these really good athletes; they have explosiveness in their game. They have great games, and then it goes away. And then they get a big contract, and then they don't work hard. And it's it's one of those things that it's disappointing because you just know, man, if you 
if you if you loved it, if you loved what you were doing, you could be one of the best and you're just not going to do it. And that's okay because they've gotten by their entire life and their entire career playing basketball doing it the way they've done it. And they don't have to work hard. It, a lot of the athletes, especially in basketball, you have to be God-given to be that. Like I could I could have worked as hard as anybody in the world, John. I was never going to be a professional basketball player because I was not born to be one. These people that are in the league are born to be basketball players. And so I think to get to that next step, man, they just have to, you know, they have to love it. And there's some guys that just don't, but they're, you know, they're six foot eight and they can run and they can jump and they can shoot. So they made it all the way to the NBA. It's really interesting for me to hear that. And I think if fans saw what you saw behind the scenes, you know, it would make it um, easier to root. Give us an idea, because I always used to go through this with my own kids. Like they go and they want to buy a Blazer jersey or an NBA player's jersey. I'm often left going, buy this guy's jersey, not that guy's jersey. So, the, you know, of the guys you saw, if there were two or three jerseys you were going to say, hey, these are guys who put in the time, who do the work, you include Lillard. Who else yeah. is in that short list? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think LaMarcus was one of those guys when he was in Portland. He was a guy mm-hmm. that worked really hard to improve his game, improve his body. You saw that when he came into the league. He was a skinny guy. When he left Portland, he was big and he was buff. I think he's he's a guy like that. Um, I think uh, it's tough right now for the Blazers team right now. I think Dame's really the only guy on the roster that I could really vouch to say this is the guy that's putting in the work every single day. Steven, I, I love that. I love that perspective. Uh, coming up, top of the hour, we will uh, talk about uh, the 30 for 30 series being done on Bill Walton. Documentarian Steve James has got a four-part series that will begin airing next week. Yeah, I think people uh, look at athletes for high-level professional athletes and often think, oh, so much of it comes naturally to them. I love what Stephen was sharing in that last segment about the players who also put in the work, who also have that chip on their shoulder or maybe that inner drive, you know, that that ability to uh, to be maniacal, monomaniacal, literally singularly focused on an outcome or or uh, or a result that they want. Bill Walton, you know him, you love him. We've had him on this show numerous times over the years, and uh, he is uh, always entertaining to me. But he's also not for everyone. You know, I, every time I bring up Bill Walden or I write a column about Bill Walden saying how great he is, how much I look forward to seeing him on the broadcast, and, you know, he's for me. I like I like Bill Walden. I like having him on the show. I like watching him on TV. If you uh, if there's a book about Bill Walden, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. If there's a documentary about Bill Walden, I'm going to watch it. Steve James created the iconic Hoop Dreams documentary. He's got a new documentary coming out. It's called The Luckiest Guy in the World. It focuses on legendary NBA Hall of Famer and resident deadhead Bill Walton. The broadcast premiere is coming up June 6th. It's a four-part series. First two episodes will air back-to-back on ESPN 30 for 30. The concluding two episodes will air the following week, June 13th, 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Steve James, Chicago-based Steve James, is the creator of this. He goes back to Hoop Dreams, and uh, he's joining us now. Steve, thank you for making time for us. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Give us an idea. What, you know, in your mind, 
Are you just watching Walden? Like, you know, are you uh, in a haze listening to the Grateful Dead? And you go, you know what? I need to do. How did this come to you? Uh, no, no, no haze. Um, ESPN <laughs> approached me a few years ago, back in 2020, actually, and and said that um, they were hoping that they could make a film about Bill. Uh, particularly focusing on the Portland 76-77 championship team, which you may have heard of. Um, and uh, and was I interested? And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in Bill Walton. I followed him, you know, his whole career. So I'm interested, but, I, but let me read his memoir. And so I went and read his memoir, and I got back to them, and I said, yes, I'd love to do this, but here's the thing. I don't want to just focus on that championship season, as great as it is. I really want to get my arms around the whole Bill Walton story, if, if that's at all possible, and if and if he'll let us do that. And so they were game, and Bill ultimately was game, and so here we are with this four-part <laughs> uh, docuseries. Now, the Portland years, plural, are, are a big part of it. In fact, I use those Portland years to really frame – the first three episodes of, of the series, because I really think that kind of everything that happened to Bill for good and for bad happened during those, you know, three years that he, uh, or four years really, right. Four years that he played uh, for the, for the trailblazers. His, you know, when I bring him on the show, I ask maybe uh, two, three questions and the rest of the 20 minutes is me sitting back yeah. and listening to Walton did it start yeah. as a four-part series, or was it just going to be one part, and you were like, you know, <laughs> how did that go? Uh, well, I, um, you know, if ever there's a filmmaker that was made to to do Bill's story, because I like I like doing long stuff. I've done a number of miniseries lately, uh, and Hoop Dreams is not short. Um, you know, I'm probably the guy. I I think I knew all along that it wanted to be more than a standalone film. And not just because Bill likes to talk, um, but because there's so much to tell in that story. But you're right. Um, you know, a lot of times in these sports biographies, because I've watched a bunch of them, you know, they'll sit down with the main subject for one long interview or maybe a couple of long interviews, typically. Um, we did about 12 interviews with Bill. Uh because I knew that there would be no way to kind of get the full story in one sitting, uh, not, not, not the way Bill tells stories. And so you see him in a variety of interview settings, talk, taking, us, taking you through different parts of his life. And he loved, he loved to know what was going to be the topic of that particular interview so that he could pick the right T-shirt to wear. Um, <laughs> whether it was a Grateful Dead t-shirt, one of his favorites for when we talked about Grateful Dead, or it was a, a Celtic green when we talked about his years with the Celtics or, you know, the Clipper years. I mean, he he was always like, okay, I need to pick the right t-shirt. And, of course, you probably know he has probably 10,000 t-shirts, so I only saw a fraction of them, but, but, um, but there you go. We're talking to Steve James, filmmaker, the – Luckiest Guy in the World is a four-part series. First two episodes of uh, the Bill Walton uh, documentary will air on uh, coming up on uh, June 6th. And then the second two episodes the following week on June 13th. Um, the Wilds of Oregon. Does he get 
into that, you know, his time spent in Oregon? Because in a lot of ways, I feel like he was made for this state, and I'm glad he spent some yeah. time here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we begin the film with Bill down by the river there in Portland. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he really appreciated the opportunity to, to, cause we went, we went out to, you know, and unfortunately I can't remember the name, but we went out to a state park near there to access the river. And, you know, it'd been a long time since he'd been in that setting because of his feet, you know, he, hmm. he can't, he can't hike. He can't do that. And so we helped him get down there, and he was really, I think, moved and appreciative of the opportunity to sit by the river in that way because we have footage of him from those early years in Portland doing the very same thing, hiking down by the river on his bike. Um, and so it was. I was determined to, to, you know, revisit those memories with him and to try to do them in the setting where those – those experiences happened and um and so we were able to do that so yes that's a that's a big part of the story the other thing we do in this in this film which is not again not it's not typically done in these sports biopics is that we just hang with him Mm. um we hang with him as he goes around to some of the old homes he lived in in portland which of course no pro basketball player would ever live in those kind of homes today um we we went to Wallace Park Court, um, and he started retrieving rebounds for a couple of young ball players who were who were there shooting, uh, who at first had no idea who this guy was. Um, <laughs> and you know we so we trail him around so that you can get a sense of what Bill's life is like today. Um, we 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 went with him to visit his mother, who we always dutifully went to see while she was alive. And so we, we got a great, sweet little scene with her and Bill before she passed away. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a very intimate kind of portrait. Um, I think for people who don't like Bill Walton, this will not be for them. <laughs> you know, we're, this is not an expose on Bill Walton. Um, I don't think there's an expose to be done. But, but you know, it's, it's a very entertaining. I think it's a very poignant and frank and often quite funny um, you know, account of his life and and the people he knew and played against. Filmmaker Steve James, our guest. Uh, the documentary is called "The Luckiest Guy in the World." It's on Bill Walton, um, the Grateful Dead. The soundtrack uh, of this docu series. I'm I'm assuming the Grateful Dead comes up in it. What is it about yes. the Grateful Dead? Do you think that connects with Walton? Well, I think you know. I think. What it is is, and he talks about the Grateful Dead in the series. And yes, we we have a lot of Grateful Dead in in the show, which was great to be able to do. Um, you know, I think the Grateful Dead for him not only did he just love the music itself and the lyrics, you know, the the what what the music was about. I think he just loved the way in which the Grateful Dead were as a band. That and he equates the Dead to a basketball team. You know, the way in which every part works together and that, and that for him, every concert uh, is, is different, much like every basketball game is different. You know, when I, when I asked him, you know, how could you possibly want to go to over a thousand Grateful Dead concerts in your life, which is what he's been to. 
he says, well, I've seen, I've been to thousands of basketball games and I'm still doing it because they're all different. And that's true of the Grateful Dead. Now, you know, and then I think it's also this, the, the vibe, it's, it's, it's a religious experience for him and the other deadheads to be there. It's a transcendent experience. And, and basketball for Bill was a transcendent experience. So he, he equates the dead to basketball in a, in, a, in a very interesting way in the docuseries. I think it's fascinating because, you know, I got a chance to see some of the, uh, the footage uh, of the four-part series. And, and for Portland fans in particular, if you're a Blazer fan, I think it's a must-watch. And you're going to see, yeah. um, you're going to see images that, uh, you know, you, you probably didn't even know existed. We've all seen sort of the same stuff over and over again. There's new material in here that, that I hadn't seen before in being here in 20 years, Steve. Uh, how hard was it for you to get? some of the footage from that era and maybe even from his time, you know, in college and, and x-rays and all the stuff that you are, were able to sort of obtain to do this series. Yeah, it, it, um, it was a challenge. Um, we had a terrific um, archival producer, two guys who, who really just beat the bushes um, for what was out there, and we were never satisfied with just getting something. We always wanted the best that, that we could find. I mean, there's some phenomenal protest footage in this from his days at UCLA. Um, there's great footage from the Portland years. Uh, yeah, I mean, we just we we turned over every stone in search of it, and um, and Bill, you know, Bill and his lovely wife Lori of 30 years were incredibly helpful to us in terms of putting us in touch with um, some people who, who had stuff and, and, you know, opening up their, their vast library of, of photographs to us as well. And, and letting us, letting us use those in the series. Um, yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the pleasures I think of the series is, is that it, it really is a film that takes you back Um you know, a lot of times people use archival footage just to illustrate voiceover, but we really, we really wanted it to have its own life and and take you back to that time and and make you feel what he felt, you know, when he was coming through. I was talking to Sally Jenkins, the author, last hour about you know how do you know what to leave out of a book? Imagine right. uh, the cutting room floor on this documentary was rich as well. How do you know what yeah. to leave out when it comes to something like this? Well, um, you know, some people will accuse me of not leaving anything out, which is why I make <laughs> four-part docuseries. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel very satisfied with what, what, we, what we made here. Um, I feel like we, you know, of course you always leave things out. You leave great stories out. He, tell, he told this great story that's not in the, in the series about when he was at UCLA uh, after the junior year championship games, a great, you know, 21 for 22 from the field game, 44 points. And he was, um, you know, he was staying, he was staying in a, in a fancy hotel room because the hotel room that the, the team had been set up in didn't have beds long enough. And so uh, they, <laughs> they took care of Bill and they got him a much better hotel room. Uh, and so the ABA uh, representatives approached him, um, you know, to try to get him to to leave early and go play in the ABA. And he tells that story. I, I would have loved to put that in there, but, you know, I couldn't get everything in. 
you know, of course, when Bill tells the story, the ABA showed up with a with a briefcase full of cash, uh, like the mafia would do. <laughs> Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But you know, Bill Bill is a storyteller. Yes. So I, I'm not I'm not sure how true that was, but I do know the ABA offered him an enormous for that time an enormous amount of money to turn pro, and he said no. Dave Pash, his uh, broadcast partner on a lot of the basketball broadcasts, has come on the show and talked about what it's like to work with him. You address yeah. sort of the polarizing, you know, viewing experience that Walton can be in the piece. Um, I love that yeah. you did that. Yeah, I, I think it was important to do that, you know, because and and Dave uh, Dave Pash, of course, is in the film and uh, talking about uh, that working experience with Bill. Um, and the challenges of it and the joys of it. But yeah, I think it was important. I think it was important to sort of really see the way in which Bill, as a broadcaster, is both loved and not so loved. Um, and, and he knows that, right? I mean, he knows that about himself, and he's not going to change. He's, he's decided this is who he is, and that this is how he wants to, to, to do that job, and that's the way he does it. And um, you know, I thought I thought one of one of my favorite comments of that whole section is from Andy Hill, who is perhaps maybe Bill's closest friend, if not the closest one of his closest friends for the last 50 years. Andy was on the team at UCLA and, you know, sat on the bench, but what, you know, became close with Bill. And Andy talks about how. Friends will complain to him about Bill, the broadcaster, and he tells them, "Do you guys not realize he's my, my he's a he's a, my closest friend? Just turn the volume down. That's what I do." <laughs> and and the fact that Andy says as his closest friend that he turns the volume down sometimes, I think tells you all you need to know. <laughs> I love that. Uh, look, uh, you've done a whole bunch of great projects and. And for people listening, it's not just Hoop Dreams. The Prefontaine movie in 1997, uh, you you directed that. Um, did you have fun doing the uh, the feature film on Pre? I absolutely did. Yeah, um, that was a project that came along. You know, I was a track and field fan, but only in the most casual sense. And I knew Pre, and I knew why he was important. But it was a great opportunity for me to really learn his story. And, um, you know, we, we, were, we were able to cast some of his, um, his actual teammates in the film, which was a lot of fun. Um, and it was great to spend the time. You know, of course, the story is we weren't able to shoot the film in Portland. Uh, we weren't able to shoot the film at Hayward Field in Eugene because, yeah. uh, because of the other Prefontaine movie, uh, Without Limits, hmm. they basically bought out Hayward Field for the entire summer to prevent us from going there. Really? Uh, Yeah. So it was, it was quite an ordeal. We were the, we were the PT vote vote version of pre-story compared to the aircraft carrier that was without limits. But, um, but we, you know, we told our story and it was a great story to tell. And I know he remained an iconic figure in all of Oregon. Yeah, I think, you know, too, it's really interesting. I keep thinking about, like, in this world of name, image, likeness, you've got Walton and Pre, probably two guys that, had they been along in a different time, would have been pioneers in that area. Absolutely. Well, and I, and I think one of the things you see in the series 
um, you, particularly strongly in episode two when we get into Bill's activism, um, both at UCLA and in Portland, and the whole debacle of the Patty Hearst Symbionese Liberation Army story. Um, I think one of the things you see is, is that Bill really was one of the most outspoken white athletes. I want to, I want to, I want to say white because there've been so many significant black outspoken athletes in, in American sports, but not many whites. It's particularly on political issues. And I think he qualifies as one of the most outspoken white athletes that we've ever had in professional sports. And so I thought it was very important for you to see that part of who he was back in those days. I love it. Uh, you know, look, I've, I got a peek at it. I can't wait for everybody else to see it. Uh, it will air episodes one and two of the four-part Bill Walton docuseries will air on the 6th of June. I uh, really appreciate you making time, Steve. It is called The Luckiest Guy in the World. It focuses on uh, your resident deadhead, uh, Bill Walton, Hall of Famer. Steve James, thank you. Congrats on the, on the project. I look forward to everybody seeing it. I think it will be really well received. Thank you. Great to hear. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard him say he's the luckiest guy in the world before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Among other things, <laughs> among other things. I, I'm just glad. I'm glad he got healthy, right? Because I know there was a period yeah. there. I know I was trying to get him on the show for a while, and he would just write back, "I am in miserable pain." And yeah. I was like, "Gosh, and we, you know." And, and we deal with that. We deal with that in episode four, I think, quite quite significantly. Um, that time in 2008, 2009, when his back gave out, and he didn't think he was we would even walk again. No. Um, so we we deal with that, and 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 his wife Lori speaks about it, and other close friends. I mean, you know, this is a film. You know, this is a series where we interview some great people. You know, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Dr. J. You know, rivals as well as teammates uh, from his career. But we also we also speak to people who are very close to him and, and, and can speak to those difficult uh, times in his life and not just have Bill have to speak to it. So, Steve, I appreciate you. Thank you for uh, making time for us. Thank you for having me on. Steve James, filmmaker, Bill Walton documentary series, The Luckiest Guy in the World, June 6th, ESPN. Leave it here. I appreciate good marketing when I uh, when I see good marketing. I also know when it's jumped the shark. The NBA, the NBA Finals in particular, NBA Finals. We got Game One coming up tonight. Yeah, it's Game One tonight, uh, and uh, in Denver, featuring the Nuggets and the Miami Heat. Uh, did you see how the Larry O'Brien Trophy uh, reached the NBA Finals, Stephen? I did, and um, I. I... I didn't actually watch the video. I saw a tweet about it, and I said, that's enough for me. Same thing for me. I got a uh, a news release 3 o'clock today and uh, from the NBA. Email came in. It's a bird. It's a plane. And I went, oh, no. And it's the NBA Finals. By the way, the NBA Finals being presented by YouTube TV this year. Uh, but the Larry O'Brien Trophy, the trophy that will go to the winner of the NBA Finals, apparently – was delivered to downtown Denver via a skydiver. This is the most YouTube TV ever thing ever. 
the skydive um, basically uh, they said it was a month long bucket list. They're trying to get the Larry O'Brien Trophy some some uh, some run. Like everybody knows what the Super Bowl trophy looks like. I I don't know. I think basketball fans know what the Larry O'Brien Trophy is. Do you think they know that? Do you think the average Blazer fan knows that that trophy that's in the trophy case at the practice facility is the Larry O'Brien Trophy, or do they just go, "That's the championship trophy"? I, th- I would say a lot more people think it's just the championship trophy. Yeah. Well, they got this thing being paraded around the country, motorcycled car. It uh, they put it on Instagram, Twick, TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook. But they skydive. They're skydiving in the trophy now. I would have been impressed if it was just the trophy, skydiving in. But it's not. It's some guy wearing a motorcycle helmet, who's got the trophy strapped to his chest. He's jumping out of a purple plane, and harnessed. Uh, you know, he's got a harness around this thing. And there are two other skydivers, who are wearing Denver Nuggets, and Miami Heat jerseys, who are skydiving in with him. They uh, land outside uh, Empire Empower Field uh, at at Mile High, and uh, Malika Andrews, the uh, University of Portland grad and ESPN host, is basically there to greet the trophy, and then she drives the trophy along with a police escort to Ball Arena, and uh, apparently they're going to continue the gimmick throughout the finals, the NBA final trophy has a Twitter account uh at NBA Final Trophy. I'm uh it only has three thousand five hundred and twelve followers. I say only, but you would think that the trophy for the league would have a bigger following. It doesn't. I actually they make it kind of look like a person, which is weird to me. It almost looks like a like about a six year old or an eight year old who has a skydiving instructor strapped to its back. Because it almost has like a you know because they're protecting it, I guess they must be bundling it with something some kind of protective uh, bubble wrap or whatnot. It's weird to me. This is weird. This is like you know might as well have Jack in the box jump out of the Jack from Jack in the box jump out of the plane with the trophy. Like might as well go all the way if you're jumping the shark. Sell the uh, sell the rights to jump out <laughs> to somebody. As you're jumping out, I'm sure it's a Kia that they're going to drive it around with. But they took it to the Eiffel Tower. They took it to the beach in Brazil. They took it, you know, I I, I just, I, I shouldn't even be giving this publicity. It's so bad. I don't know. It reminds me, like, as, as far as TV marketing campaigns that just didn't land, people may remember Quizno had this little, you know, Quizno the sandwich place, Quiznos, had this little rat-like creature we've talked about it on the show before it was a rat-like you know um mascot a singing rodent more or less and i get it the chihuahua was a was a big deal for taco bell remember the uh, chihuahua had a kind of a had a little run for taco bell you care Quiz- taco bell yeah and that worked for me because there was there was sort of a uh there was a theme there it wasn't just a dog it was a chihuahua, and you know, and he. There was sort of a correlation to Mexican food loosely, or Americanized Mexican slop food, which is what Taco Bell really is, you know, late night Mexican food. 
and and so the Chihuahua worked, but the Quizno rodent, this small furry creature wearing like a bowler hat, and he was singing. It did not. It was not an appetizing thing for me. It, it as misfires go, it was kind of like when Coke introduced new Coke, and a lot of people think that was a conspiracy theory, but I don't know what happened to that little rat rodent Quizno mascot, but it needed to go away. It looked like a deformed rat, and that doesn't that doesn't make me want a sandwich. I don't think I ate another sandwich at Quiznos after seeing that campaign. It was bad. It was really bad. There, now, there's some good marketing. You know, we have great examples here in the state of Oregon with, with good marketing and Nike and, you know, Widening Kennedy and great ad agency. And, you know, there was there's, you know, I, I saw Pacific Seafoods did a did a spot during the basketball season. Anna and I did a little voice track for it. And and I, I was like, well, what is the spot? And they showed us the spot. And it was it was Peyton Pritchard who was in like the kitchen with a chef. And I was like, okay, that works. Like, that's kind of funny. Like, Peyton Pritchard with a sushi chef, you know, and Pacific Seafood. Okay, that that works. It's not a singing rat. That doesn't make me want to eat. So I Quizno was a misfire. I kind of think this NBA Finals thing, it's a reach for me. You know, I, I don't get it. The bucket list. Like, the NBA Finals trophy showed up at the Memorial Tournament. You know, it, it, it just started popping up all over the place. Like, everywhere that... ABC or ESPN was broadcasting on the PGA Tour in, you know, Rio at an event. You know, it the script spelling bee, it showed up at the script spelling bee. Uh, it just doesn't, it didn't work for me. I, I think there was a better way. There was a better way to do this. Maybe, you know, I, I actually like, you know, the Heisman House and and how they uh, they had all the the former Heisman Trophy winners as if they were living in the Heisman House. And that whole campaign Nissan did, I, I liked that. It worked for me. Like, you know, the Heisman House, the Heisman Trophy. Oh, they all live there. You know, where is the Heisman House? Oh, it's in Nashville. Oh, who's living there? You know, and, and I think those commercials work for me. You see, like, Derrick Henry and Kyler Murray and Tim Tebow, you know, who are all, like, hanging out. And, and every, you know, everybody's like, okay, that works. But this thing doesn't work for me. Why not? Why not just have the Larry O'Brien Trophy, like, why don't we just show everywhere it's recently been? Like LeBron's sitting at home and he's got the trophy with him. And then you go back, Steph Curry and or Draymond Green's got the trophy with him. You know, he's buckling it into his car. And he's going, you know, he's going to the grocery store. Like that would have been a more effective marketing campaign for me. I don't know. I'm gonna have just to add, me. I'm gonna have to show my kids the video and see if they like it. Because maybe it's for them. I don't know. Because I'm with you. I don't get it either. Like what I don't like what's the point of it? Are we trying to you know act like the Larry O'Brien trophy is our friend? Like, is that what we're trying to do? We're trying to feel good for it, that it went skydiving? I don't know. Like, it's it's not a person, so I can't really, like, feel for it. Well, here's here's what I think it's about. YouTube TV, you know, that's kind of the, the new thing with the NBA Finals, is that it's presented by YouTube TV. So I'm gathering that they were spitballing with the people at YouTube TV going, okay, what what are the kind of videos that people post on YouTube TV or what do you see on YouTube that, you know, you don't see on mainstream TV? Like maybe they should have just had a bunch of cat videos and the Larry O'Brien trophy sitting around. And maybe it would have been like the cats of YouTube along with like Draymond Green's got a cat, you know, and oh, Draymond, let me show you. Let me meet my cat. 
and the Larry O'Brien trophies in the background. That would have been better for me. I actually think that would be better. Yeah, it's a much better idea than what they're doing. They need to come to the show for the ideas. But here's here's because the the press release I think says it all. So the press release just say says the the NBA's Larry O'Brien Trophy has reached a new and extreme height by skydiving into downtown Denver to arrive for Game One of the NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV. Tips off tonight. Bob, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the video. Now they say the skydive was executed in celebration of the start of the NBA Finals featuring the Nuggets and the Heat. And it culminates a month-long bucket list that has seen Larry O'Brien's the Larry O'Brien Trophy engage with fans and celebrities at some of the most prestigious events and iconic landmarks before reaching its ultimate destination, the hands of the 2023 NBA champion. Now, in order to like for me, a bucket list, I, you know, I don't know what a bucket list is for you, but for me, a bucket list is these are the things I want to do before I die. Is Larry O'Brien like? Does the Larry O'Brien Trophy? Did it get diagnosed with a terminal illness? Could they be changing the name for some reason? Michael Jordan, I, Bill Russell, something like that. It was on the Pat McAfee show. Like that would be on the bucket list for Larry O'Brien Trophy. I don't think so. You know, it was at the Indy 500. Okay, maybe it, maybe it really wanted to go to the Indy 500. But but the the trophies for these other events, like the Indy 500 or. You know, Monday Night Raw, the championship belt for the WWE thing. Um, you know, Stanley Cup Finals, PGA Championship. Those trophies aren't coming to the NBA Finals. So are we saying that the Larry O'Brien Trophy isn't as big a deal as the other trophies? Like, well, is it? You know? the, it's probably not, though. I mean, you think about just the major sports, what the iconic trophies is. The NBA would be towards the bottom, right? Like, the Stanley Cup is probably the most noticed like trophy, right? They took a picture at the PGA Championship of the Wanamaker Trophy, which is the trophy for the PGA Championship, alongside the Larry O'Brien Trophy. And I got to tell you, the Wanamaker's a little more impressive. You know? Just saying. Well, Bigger's, not, the, bigger's not always better, John. It, it was at the Greek Theater. Um, the Jonas Brothers are pictured kissing it. I don't know. I've done stories on people who have terminal illnesses in sports and sports fans. And they will say, here's my bucket list. Like, I had this doctor one time who lived in Clackamas, Oregon, who's a doctor at Kaiser. Uh, Jeffrey Werner was his name. He had terminal cancer. Okay, he knew he was dying. He had a bucket list. And on his bucket list, he had, he wanted to make a, he wanted to see Dan Dickow make a three-point shot. It was a pretty cool bucket list item. Like, very unique, very specific. And so... He asked me, because Nate McMillan was the Blazers coach at the time, he said, will you, go, will you ask Nate, you know, when Dickow's going to play so I can be at the game to see him hit a three? And so I go to Blazers practice, and that's a totally reasonable request, right, from somebody who's dying. I was like, yeah, you know what, I'll ask him. And, you know, so I go to Blazers practice, and I pull Nate McMillan aside, and I said, Nate, um, I said, I have a weird question for you. I don't want to ask you in front of everybody else. I said, but do you know – Maybe when Dan Dickow might get into a game because I got this cardio uh, cardiologist named Dr. Jeffrey Warner who says, you know, he would like to see Dan Dickow make a three. It's on his bucket list, and he, he doesn't have the time to go to, like, eight games waiting for you to play Dickow. Like, do you know, is there a game on the schedule where you could kind of anticipate Dan might get into the game? And Nate looked at me, and he said, he better come to practice. <laughs> and so... 
Dr. Werner came to a Blazers practice. I introduced him to Nate McMillan. He came with me. I said, Nate, Dr. Werner, Dr. Werner, Nate. And then Dr. Werner pulled me aside, and he says, I don't know how to tell you this. He said, uh, when Nate was with the Sonics, he had a heart issue. And I was the cardiologist that the Sonics brought in to look at his EKG. And he says, Nate doesn't know that. And I said, you should tell him that. And so the doctor was like, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I should, you know, make a big deal about it, whatnot. Anyway, Dan Dickow comes out onto the court. I introduce him to Dr. Werner. And then I'm standing there with Nate. And I said, Nate, I said, I know something about your medical history I shouldn't know. Doctor wants to talk to you afterwards. And Nate was looking at me like, you know, Nate was a very private person. And he's like looking at me funny. And I said, just bear with me here. So Dickow just takes a couple dribbles, talks to the doctor, shoots a three, boom. Doctor thanks him, takes a picture with him, says, bucket list, now on to my next thing, which was he wanted to go to Hawaii and catch the wind in a gourd. And he did that, you know. I, I guess it's a thing. You go to the tip of one of the islands, the big island or something, and you hold up a gourd. The Hawaiians who are listening to the show know what I'm talking about. And you catch the wind in a gourd. That was the next thing on his list. Nowhere on his list did he say, I want to see the Larry O'Brien Trophy skydive. It's not a bucket list item. The are, NBA, come on. Are we going to start seeing just more dumb ideas now that the NFL Sunday tickets going to YouTube TV? Are we going to be be marched out a bunch of NFL stuff like this too? But you might be right. It might not be made for us. Maybe the kids are going to be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the trophy sky took a skydive. Came right into the arena. Anyway, the doctor pulled McMillan aside and said, Nate, you know, you had a heart issue with the Sonics. Nobody ever knew about it. And Nate says, yeah, I did. I, I, I was scared. Like, you know, I had a heart condition and we were kind of worried like would I would was this going to cause me to never play again and he said uh, you know the doctor the cardiologist told him you know uh, ironically I was brought in to consult on that and I looked at your EKG and I looked you know I did sort of the background work on it that determined you were okay to play and so they had they kind of had a moment it was one of these weird things so there it was there was some soul to it it was a little soulful this thing with uh, the Larry O'Brien trophy, it's not soulful. It's just commercial. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Got some good stuff coming down the pipeline at johnconzano.com. Make sure you grab a free subscription or a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. Uh, the Boston Celtics uh, are going to keep Joe Mazzula. Brad Stevens, uh, who is the team president now, uh, said that Missoula remains the head coach and will return next season. Called him a terrific leader. Said he'll only get better. Uh, he's constantly trying to learn. Missoula led the Celtics to a 57-25 and record. They were the two-seed in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Boston's season, of course, ended in that Game 7 loss to the Heat in the, in the finals, the Eastern Conference finals. I still think Boston was the better team, though. Steven, help me out here. Are they giving Joe Missoula a pass? Or are they just kind of understanding it? He's 34 and he's going to grow. Is, it, is this because maybe they've been through some stuff with, uh, obviously, Ime Adoka? Um, uh, is, is it the perspective angle? Like, you know, what's going on with the Celtics standing by Joe Missoula? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all that. Um, you know, there was also a report today at the athletic that the departure of Damon Stoudemire going to Georgia Tech was a big mm. part of that as well as he was really respected assistant coach. Um and like Jalen Brown really loved him and you know hated to do it, but he gave him uh you know a uh, got him got him help with that job and give it a good word for him. So I think that had to do with it. I think it's just the uncertainty of the entire team. You know, it was a weird situation he got thrown into 
And the Celtics have been really good at the start of the season. So I, I think it's a little bit of that. I think it's a little bit that he's only 34 years old, still going to get better. He was you know, a bright mind, and he was thought to be a head coach at some point one day. Maybe it's a little early, but just don't want to give up on the guy after one year. I, th- I think it's okay that they're going to run it back. They had a nice little run at the end of the season. I do agree with you. They should have beat the Heat. Um, they are the much better team, but uh, I, I understand why they're going to give him at least one more year. And if it doesn't work, then they're going to reevaluate, I think, next year. But it would be hard to say, you know, a 34-year-old coach put in this situation, getting to the Eastern Conference Finals Game 7, you're going to fire him after one year. It, it seems that would seem excessive. All right. There's a quote. It was the last paragraph of the ESPN story on, on you know, Missoula coming back and, you know, here's the State of the Union. Brad Stevens quoted throughout the piece. The last paragraph jumped out at me, and I think it was buried. Uh, Steven says, quote, at the end of the day, we love our foundation, we love our core, and that's really our focus and our priority. It made me think of the Blazers, because there's been all this talk about would the Celtics trade a key piece to the Blazers? Is Jalen Brown that guy? And it feels to me like what the Celtics are signaling with this, you know, vote of confidence for Missoula is, look, they're going, Emi Adoka got suspended in September. Um, Missoula takes over. You've had three assistant coaches, you know, you know, who are now going to be leaving to go rejoin Udoka, who was uh, named coach of the Rockets last month. So you got like Aaron Miles, Ben Sullivan, Mike Mose, come, they're all going to be leaving. And I think Brad Stevens is worried about kind of the rhythm of the Celtics right now. And so Blazer fans who I think were holding out hope that the Celtics may be a trade partner, I don't think so. I think they're going to try to run it back and tr- keep as much of their core and, and their culture and their team together as possible. I agree with you. And the thing about you know Jalen Brown being a possible trade target for Portland, he's eligible for the Supermax contract because he got second team All-NBA so he can sign a five-year, $290 million deal with Boston. If he were to be traded to Portland, I believe it goes down to four years, $193 million, something like that. So it's like a $100 million difference if Boston yeah. wants to. And so the question is, is Brad Stevens going to offer that to Jalen Brown? I, you know, I don't care how mad you are in a situation. $100 million is hard to say no to. And yeah. so if, yeah. they, if he gets offered that, I don't, I don't see any way. He's like, no, I, I want to go to Portland and take $100 million off the table. But you know what? You know there are rumors that they may not offer it. They may offer him less. So there's still hope if you're a Portland fan, you want Jalen Brown in Portland. I just think it's getting less and less as time goes by. We get closer to the draft. I also think there's a little bit of um, I don't want to call it ignorance because it's it you know the word ignorant comes with comes loaded. It's you know it's it's got negative connotations to it. But I think there's a little bit of disillusionment with the Blazer fan base. If I can be kind about it. Um, I've talked to GMs over the years about trades, and usually trades, particularly trades that happen that you know are maybe right before the draft or right before the trade deadline, you're generally trading a problem for a problem. Your problem for my problem is what one Western Conference GM told me years ago. You know, hey, you're going to have to trade your problem for my problem. Nobody is really giving you something that they think can be part of their future. Nobody's going to be giving you something that they think is an important part of their present. It's uh, it's a problem. It's a bad contract. It's a player who maybe did something that someone in the franchise thinks it's unforgivable. 
It's giving up on an era. It's it's your problem for my problem. And it's why you often see, you know, if you're trading players that uh, you know, are really good players on the court, you're offering you're offering often getting pennies on the dollar for them. And we I think we saw that with the Blazers even trading CJ McCollum. I don't think they got full value. And of course, if you go back in Blazers history, the trade of Rasheed Wallace, the trade of Bonzi Wells, the, you know, when the Blazers sort of pivoted in that era and said we're no longer gonna take guys with, you know, questions on you know, questionable uh, backgrounds, um, they got you know, it was a it was a fire sale. Um, the Blazers right now, Damian Lillard's not a problem. You know, it's a it's a dilemma in that his age doesn't fit. His skill set may be diminishing in the coming two or three or four years, and he's really going to get paid. It's a bit of a conundrum, but he's not a problem right now on the court, and. If you're going to trade Damian Lillard right now, I think, you know, what you're going to get in return, I don't I don't think you're going to get full value unless you really carefully shop. And that's why I am hesitant with the draft or a, a any kind of deadline cuz the draft is a deadline. There's going to be a draft in June this month. And that creates a deadline. And in a lot of times those deadlines I think are false. And it, it creates an urgency when there really isn't an urgency, right? The trade deadline in February does the same thing. There's no urgency if you're going to move Lillard. So I think the bigger play for the Blazers, I still think you have to utilize Lillard to get your future, right? If You, you're, you don't use the three pick to play for now. You use the three pick to play for the future. So you, you draft somebody at number three coming up in this June draft, and if you're going to shop Lillard, you don't do it with an eye towards we have to move him before the draft because I think you create a false deadline there. You can trade Damian Lillard at any point. So I think, like people keep asking me, are you saying the Blazers must trade Lillard? No, no, no. You Not must trade Lillard. You want the right deal for him. but And you don't have to do it prior to the deadline, and you don't have to do it prior to February, but... If you are really thinking about your future, you begin to think about it with Lillard. You draft somebody with the three pick, and then you go, hey, we're looking for the best possible deal between now and whenever that deal materializes. Leave it here. Grab a podcast to this show wherever you get a podcast. Sally Jenkins, author, was on the show in the 3 o'clock hour. We had the documentarian who's done the four-part documentary on Bill Walton on the show in hour two. Anna has now popped into the studio. Why did you look at me funny when I said Sally Jenkins is on the show? Oh, you know why. Come on. Come on. We know we know her well. Well, I told her at the end we're going to see her this summer. She, right. doesn't, she doesn't even know. For, <laughs> for listeners, <laughs> Sal, we're related to Sally by, by marriage. Yeah. Is that the best way to put yeah. it? Yeah. And so this summer... We're going to the East Coast, and they have insisted that we stay at their house, but they don't they don't know what the two young daughters are like. They've invited us to spend, like, a couple days with them. They don't know what they're in for. I don't. They have a nice, quiet yeah. life Yeah. up in uh, somewhere in Sag New Harbor. York. Sag, Sag Harbor. Sag Harbor. It's, pretty, it's supposed to be pretty swanky. Yeah. We'll they see. don't know. They we'll don't know they... what they've invited. But maybe they haven't really invited us. Maybe they just kind of said, come stay with us. 
No, I've checked with them. It's did, a real invitation. Did they do the kind of thing where they said, come stay with us? <laughs> and then we go, no, we don't want to impose. And they go, okay, here's some hotels that are in the area. It sounds, it's like on Seinfeld, the invitation. <laughs> yes. The invitation. Did, you, you handled that. I know. So what know. did they say? Uh, I was very tactful because I know that when we come to town and there's, you know, there's five of us, we're not, we're not a small group. So we're bringing all three daughters. All three daughters. We want to go see what the, uh, basically it's the Hamptons. I think so. I don't kind know. Of. Sag Harbor, that, it's up in there. It's, all, hoity, it's hoity-toity. That area is all sort of a mystery yeah. to me. I don't know. Okay. I'd love to be able to is say, it, do what, I need a passport What are you to go doing in? this summer? Oh, we're going to the Hamptons. Do, I need, do they going to let us in? <laughs> I don't even know how gonna we're going to get there. Eyeball us? Is there some, like, bus? Do I have to take a ferry or a train there? I think there's, like, a shuttle from okay. the city. But, so you asked, you so said... So I asked very tactfully. I said... Hey, do you have any ideas? Because we'd like to explore that part of New York on our yeah. trip. Do you have any? Do you have any ideas on where we could stay? And that's they, all I said. Yeah, but that kind of begs an invitation. That's you know what I mean. If I'm them, I'm going. Oh, well, we have to invite them. No, they don't. Yeah, kind of. You think? And then, is that? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like you're saying, oh, I don't know how to find some place. Can you help me out here? Yeah. That's not. That's okay. Okay, right? but then, then did they then, immediately so offer? They or? immediately offered. Yeah, that, I expect that. And then they said, but you know, if you feel like it's going to be too cramped at our place, here is an option for a place to rent. Yeah, like a place. To and stay. you said, okay, we'll rent the place. And I said, oh, well, we don't want to impose, right. so we'll rent the place. And then they came back and said, no, 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 please stay with us. We insist. Hmm. We'll be fine. It'll be, we can all camp out together. It'll be an adventure. Camp out. We'll be fine? Hmm. I'm unpacking that language. I'm paraphrasing. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Do I, I'm I need, gonna need to go to check the message? I'm going to need to see the message. <laughs> I need to know. Like, well, it's too late now. Hello? Because whoever it is that we were going to yeah. stay is probably booked, so they're well, stuck with us. Sorry. Sorry, Sally. Yeah. We're coming. The funny part of the interview was, like, Okay, so I'm interviewing Sally Jenkins, author, Washington Post yeah. sports columnist, and but I'm well aware that I've known her for a long time, yeah, and that um, we're going to be staying at her house this summer. Okay, right. so we're going through the interview, and I I wondered about five minutes into the interview if like because she's on a book tour, right? And so when I booked the interview, I have her number. I could book it directly with her, but I booked it using a publicist. Yeah. So I'm not the person who called her. You know, we got people on a show. I have people. All right. Yeah, we have yeah. people on the show that, that <laughs> made people. the call. So I'm five minutes into the interview, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, does she know who she's on air with? And then she says, John, at one point. Okay. And I went, okay, she does know. Okay. Because like, for a minute, I was thinking, like, we're doing kind of a formal interview. I don't know if you caught that, Stephen. It was very formal for somebody who is kind of an extended relative. And I just felt it was a little formal, uh -huh. the interview. Yeah. And then she loosened up, and then she started asking me questions. Uh -huh. And then I thought, okay, she knows. And then we kind of dealt with the idea of her dad and the visit this summer a yeah. little bit at the end of the interview. Yeah. But I think it's a really good interview about this book that she's written. Yeah. And she's I got, been very prolific as an author. Yeah, she's written a lot of books. Yeah. And, but here's the thing. Like, her dad was, like, a legendary Sports Illustrated, Playboy magazine, wrote a whole bunch of novels you like how i just snuck that in there mm -hmm. yeah. yeah wedged it right there. wedged it right in, the in there middle. uh you know wrote uh, everybody was reading dan jenkins yeah in that era 
and he he wrote some amazing books on golf and college football mm-hmm. that are amazing. So she comes up as this kid who is you know basically seven, eight, nine years old. She's mentioned at eleven. She goes to the British Open with her dad. Like that's you know let me go to work with you. She goes to the British Open with her dad, but. She comes up, and you kind of go, how in the shadow of Frank Sinatra, in the shadow of Joe Frazier, we watched Frank Sinatra Jr., we watched Marvis Frazier, you know, Bronny James coming in the shadow <laughs> of LeBron. Like, that's who Dan Jenkins is in the world of sports writing. Okay. Okay? And in the shadow of that, she did pretty good. Yeah. Like, close approximation mm-hmm. of her father. Mm-hmm. And maybe even a higher standard. She worked at Sports Illustrated. She worked at the Washington Post. She's written 13 books. She may have outdone her dad. Hmm. She said she wouldn't go there. But good for her. What do you mean she wouldn't go there? She said, I don't, you know, I said, you've risen to the level. You've matched your dad. Like, yeah. you've done it. You've yeah. matched your dad. And she said, I don't know if I'm willing to go, oh, go there. Interesting. But I think it's interesting because now we're going to find out, you know, what's it like to stay the night at, you know, <laughs> Aunt Sally's house. <laughs> We'll find out come this summer. And they'll find out what it's like yeah. to have five Gonzados. I can't their wait room. for her to meet Sojourner at like 11 p.m. at night. Okay? <laughs> she knows her. But does she know her? Does she know? Yeah. Okay, no, we have the five at five. Anna's here. She's ready. Hey, by the way, yeah. we got to talk about one other thing after the five at five. Okay. It was really important. Okay. So let's get to the five at five. The five at five. The number one story, as Anna sees it, is... Have you been tracking uh, this story about NBA referee Eric Lewis? A little bit. He's under league investigation for potentially operating a Twitter burner account, and he will not work the NBA finals. The league spokesman says that uh, about him and the social media posts, they're continuing to review the matter. He won't be working the finals. The league released the list of 12 officials who'll be working the final series of the season between the Nuggets and the Lakers. Mm. Lewis is not on the list. The investigation into him uh, has to do with a Twitter account with the name, wait for it, Blair Cutliffe, that only responded to tweets involving mentions of Lewis. Mm. And it is, is is there anything out there that says, yeah, I guess it's just unusual, you know, and, and uh, apparently people are looking into this. There's apparently an Instagram account as well that has an interesting link between Lewis and Blair Cutliffe. The NBA is reviewing, but let me tell you, you know, a couple of users on Instagram and Twitter, we'll get to the bottom of this before the <laughs> NBA does, but uh, apparently there's some kind of link between these accounts and uh it's really going to be sad like i kind of assume a lot of these referees have burner accounts but nba um is uh looking into this he will not referee the nba finals well and he's worked each of the last four finals i mean he's like one of the league's most respected officials how do you really feel about this i don't know what the rules are per se around league officials and social media posts obviously it's serious enough that the nba is you know keeping him out of the final series but i don't know like is there a free speech um argument to be made there that he has the right to create a burner account no because the nba forbids the officials from making public comment Mm. they're not allowed to you know joey crawford the uh legendary nba official i went to him i was doing a, a series on officiating 
years ago, you know, five, six years ago, and I went to Joey Crawford. I was in San Antonio. I tracked him down, found out where he was working, flew to the arena, flew, to, flew in, went to the arena, met up with Joey Crawford at the arena, and he said, I would love to talk to you. But he said, I can't talk to you till I retire or if the NBA gives permission. Okay. But he goes, I would love to talk to you. So I got to track Joey Crawford down yeah. and be like, what did you want to say to me Time back to then? follow let's, up. Let's get to this. But they don't allow the officials to talk. They don't want the officials to talk. And so by extension, I think if Eric Lewis has a Twitter account, the NBA is going to, I think they're probably going to frown upon it. But I also don't think he necessarily tweeted anything ridiculous or inflammatory. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of defending his officiating through yeah, a burner account. Yeah, but he wrote the rules, you know. Yeah. the rules. But I think the NBA will make an example of him. They Maybe they'll fine him. Maybe they'll say, hey, you can't do this and stay off social media. But I don't think he deserves to lose his job over this. There are a lot of NBA executives, players, Kevin Durant, you know, that uh, have burner accounts. I'd be surprised if a lot of officials didn't. Right. Number two story is Anna sees it. Staying with the NBA, I guess, Brad Stevens confirms that Joe Missoula will return as the Celtics coach next season. Uh, there was some speculation that his job security was in question after the Celtics loss in Game 7 to the Heat on Monday. But uh, Stevens is saying, you know, we'd like to have him back. Yeah, there, th- we talked about this last segment. I, I think there's continuity that Boston really is chasing right now. They lose Ime Adoka. They're losing a bunch of his assistants now at the end of the season. Damon Stoudemire goes to Georgia Tech, as we talked about. Um, I think it's why the Celtics will try to keep their core roster together, and I think it's why they're keeping Joe Missoula, even though I think, frankly, if we're being real, he got outcoached in the series. Number three. Uh, Damian Lillard agrees with Jeff Van Gundy. Halftime is pointless. And the league would be wise to eliminate the 15-minute break. Damian Lillard uh, proclaimed on social media, saying he's with Van Gundy on halftime. I do not FW it. I don't know what that means, but apparently that means that he's also in support of eliminating halftime. Uh, It was during a recent interview with The Athletic that Van Gundy suggested several substantial ways to speed up or improve the game. And he said that the whole idea of what goes on at halftime, I think it's so misunderstood. It's a lot of either praising what just happened or correcting, but you could do that in two minutes out by the bench in an elongated timeout. What was was the use of FW again? Can you read it like verbatim? I'm with Van Gundy on halftime, LOL. I do not FW it. I think it's a bad word. Oh. Yeah, it's the F word I, with it. Blank with it. Oh, okay. Nice, Anna. Family show. Hey. Real nice. I don't Gee, thank you for whiz. interpreting, Stephen. Number three or four. I, <laughs> what, are you going to do anything profane in this next one? <laughs> is it profane if I'm just using is, the first letter? This is turned into like a Tracy Morgan, you know, five <laughs> at five. If you need to, I got my finger on the dub button, Anna. Go ahead. I'm going to, I'm just going to. Cue this. Okay. Does it count? But what do you think about the halftime comment? <laughs> Damian Lillard says he doesn't <laughs> with it. Okay. Uh, what do I think about the halftime? Do you, um, think, do you see a future in which halftime no, is eliminated no, from NBA games? No. You know why? Why? Concessions. 
TV really? commercials. Oh. This is about money, guys. Van Gundy, Lillard, oh. quit thinking of yourselves. Of course, we don't need the break, but fans need to use the restroom, buy a T-shirt, get a hot dog, pay for an overpriced beer, and people at home need to watch four Kia commercials. This is about money, ringing the register. You know what? You don't <laughs> with the NBA's halftime any more than you want to. You would <laughs> with the NFL's halftime. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Number four? Yeah, I think so. I'm really discombobulated okay. now. <laughs> I can't wait to see what profanity you introduce to our family audience in this one. I don't know if it counts if I didn't know that it was profanity. <laughs> okay, Myers Leonard. I've ne- never felt more old yeah. than in this moment. Go ahead. Churchill Downs. Oh, thank goodness. They are instituting a new safety initiative. We'll see how this goes. After a rash of thoroughbred deaths on the track, it's effective immediately. New protocols announced today after a meeting between track officials and horsemen. Horsemen from Churchill Downs, <laughs> the trackside training center Louisville, all aimed at preventing catastrophic injury on the dirt track. Horses will now be limited to four starts during a rolling eight-week period, limiting how often the animals are pushed to the max. Also, ramifications for animals that aren't competitive. Horses that are beaten by more than 12 lengths and five consecutive starts will be ineligible to race at Churchill Mm. Downs until they're given a clean bill of health by approved vets. You know, it's funny is I just kept I kept waiting for you to say that one of the horsemen was quoted as saying, we got to stop killing our uh, horses. That's what we're going to do to make it safer. No, it's it's uh, it's really alarming. And, and maybe like there's part of me that goes, was this always happening and it didn't get the publicity that it gets now? Or is it really worse now? And let's be real. D. Wayne Lucas being part of this sport after what we have seen him implicated in is part of the problem. They're letting Lance Armstrong get back on the bike over and over and over again in horse racing. Well, they did have 12 horses euthanized this year. 12. Yeah. 12 in a the, relatively they, short They shouldn't be allowed time. to say euthanized. They should say that 12 horses died or were killed. Yeah, euthanized Euth- kind of softens it. It softens what it really it sound is. Like mercy killings. Yeah, hmm. you know, hey, yeah. we put we we did the humane thing with the horse. No, you didn't. You did an inhumane thing, in most of those cases. Yeah, you know, we're letting them off with the euthanized. Okay, those horses. I don't think we should say murdered, but I think it should be killed or dead. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Like there's like like in in when we tr- when we deal with people. Yeah. In media, when someone. When somebody dies, yes, a famous person in sports, in the news business, we say, you know, Joe McGee, um, you know, died on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Okay? We don't say he passed away. We don't say that he was laid to rest. We don't say that. We say he died. That's and why, what's the We either say died that? or killed. I, I know or the died. thought, but can you explain what the thought is behind that? Uh, well, I just think it's it's factual. Mm-hmm. He died, you know, and well, there's no way to soften that. Yeah. That you know, we say he's you know he's dead at the age of 73. He's dead at the age of 92. Mm-hmm. Or you know he was killed. Yeah. In a car accident. Mm-hmm. We don't say he expired. Yeah. We don't say he was laid to rest. We don't sugarcoat it. But in horse racing, we're allowing them to euthanize horses. No, they're killing horses. Mm -hmm. Let's just be real.
Okay. Maybe maybe they'd stop killing them if we said they're killing them. Yeah. I don't know. I see, don't, I see what you're going to say in there. Don't uh, <laughs> with us on that issue. Okay? Yeah. Number five, as Anna sees it. Finally. Uh, Robert Ory played alongside Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal, and Tim Duncan. But he says the best was the dream, and it's not even oh, close. My goodness. I'm really just raising this to see what you guys will say about it because he's saying Dream is number one by far. Nobody wants to talk about it. I think you have these guys who are quiet. Dream, he's a quiet guy. You can't get him to do much, to say much. So we kind of veer away from him. We just don't talk about him. But, you know, he was with Hakeem for four seasons, Shaq for seven, and he's Duncan for five. He's saying the best big man ever. That's what yeah. he's saying. He's not saying he's the greatest player ever. He's the best big man ever. I'm not buying that. Look, I think you could put Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaq, Tim Duncan. You could put Will Chamberlain, Kareem. You could put Bill Russell into this conversation. That's fine. You want to, you know, who was the best big man ever? I, what I liked about Hakeem was that he he was physically imposing, but he also just had great hands, yeah. great feet, silky shot. But I, I don't know anybody in basketball who I think would take Hakeem over maybe Shaq or Wilt Chamberlain or, if you want to talk about maybe the greatest team center of all time, Bill Russell. I'd take, him over, I'd take him over Shaq. You'd take him over Shaq? Prime Hakeem? <sighs> be Def- hard for me. I think Shaq would have, would knock Hakeem into the second row. Well, they they played each other in the NBA Finals those two years. Jordan retired. Guess who won? Hakeem, two mm. two titles. I love Hakeem Olajuwon. He's one of my favorite players of all time, if not my favorite player of all time. What did you like about him? Well, he was just so good defensively. I think that's mm. that's what I love about him. He's so good defensively, but then his moves that he had, dream shake, like he's yeah. taught so many big men how to play in the post. I, I Hakeem, I think is underrated almost uh, in his okay. career. I'll go with underrated. But is there a wrong answer to, like, Shaq, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Hakeem, Tim Duncan? No. I mean, you're going to win with all those guys. Now it's more about your supporting cast, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, all those guys, I mean, they're all in the same same breath there. Anna, I really appreciate you not being profane in four of the five uh, of your five at five. Aiming high. Four-fifths. 80%. Mm-hmm. 80% clean on today's show. Yeah. Um. All right, can we talk just for a second about the fun run that yeah. you oversaw today over at the elementary school? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you call holding a tambourine and yelling at kids overseeing it, then yeah, that's what I did. It's kind of like the yard duty <laughs> as a backup. Like a fun run. As a backup <laughs> singer, what, how did you end up with a tambourine? I acquisitioned it from the music room because I realized I was going to go horse in 20 minutes because there were five grades of kids going through that I had to cheer on. Yeah, we gave our kids advice this morning. As I, I'm going out the door, I said to them. It was quite the pep talk. Yeah, listen, you're going to run your race, but don't sprint that first lap. You're running for 20 minutes. This is a marathon. Jog-a-thon, not, you know sprint a thon. Yeah. Did they jog the opening lap? No, they were both front of the line <laughs> as whatever sounded as the cowbell <laughs> rang and uh took off like bullets. Just didn't <laughs> heed our advice. Even like I even being a volunteer had the opportunity yeah. to walk over to both of them, make sure their hair was out of their face. <laughs> 
and whisper in their ear, pace yourself. Remember, it's a 20-minute run. And, and Don't that, blow it in the first minute or two. That reminds me of the Shamrock Run we did years ago with the now 20-year-old. Uh, it's a one-mile. The, the, 1K. The 1K was the, it was the leprechaun lap, they called it. Yes. It was 1K, uh, and it was right down there with all the uh, all the you know homeless people and and uh, scary people down there. Don't say that. Uh, no, it's down on the waterfront. Down on the waterfront. down on the waterfront. In an area that, if as long as you have 30,000 friends with you in daylight, you feel good. Um, I just, hey, I'm just saying, until the city of Portland cleans it up, I'm going to call, I'm going to say that. Um, I didn't use profanity. So here's, we doing the, we're doing the leprechaun lap, Stephen, and we're doing the same thing with, you know, the now 20-year-old, but she was six at the time. And we're going, hey, you got to pace yourself. You got to, you know, we'll run with you. And Anna and I are down there. And the race starts. Boom. And sure enough, all the kids just sprint. And I look at Anna and I realize this pace is too much for Anna. And so, <laughs> Me? yeah, Dakota's gone. And I go, I'm going to stay with her. Me? Yeah. And there was, so I'm running ahead. This is not how I remember this story. <laughs> you have like revisionist no, no, history. No, okay. I looked at you like. We'll see you. It was like in the movies when the families get separated <laughs> in a catastrophic event. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Oh, I forgot because I just recanted that story to a friend today. Yeah. I forgot that part of the story where you guys took off and I basically held one hand up and I said, you said go. go on without yes. me. Just go on without me. This is like the Titanic was sinking. <laughs> Somebody had to get in the life yeah. boat. All right. So the best part, though, was this other family that was running alongside of us. And it was the, it was the, it was the mom yelling at the kid as we're all running. This yeah, her is, name was Addie. Yeah, right. Addie. This, this is all happening in the first hundred meters yes. of a one k run. Yes. And she's yelling at Addie to pace herself. Addie, pace yourself. Loudly. Pace yourself. Yeah. And the dad's yelling, "Be quiet! Run your race, Addie!" He literally run your said, race, Addie. Don't listen to your mother. You run your race. You just run your race. <laughs> We were, I, you know what? Now I remember. Yeah. I remember now why I couldn't run. Why? Because I was doubled over laughing <laughs> at that scene. Well. That's why. It's not because my cardiovascular endurance is zero. It's because I was laughing. It's a, it's a fun run, Anna. <laughs> you were having more fun than anybody. Leave it here. Get the bald face truth statewide. Run your race, Anna. Run your race. Was that the first fun run you ever ran in, that Shamak run back in the day? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I never did that. I know you guys did a lot of that as a family growing up, but no, yeah. I, I was not not a runner. Still not really a runner. I'll go back to the Turkey Trot 1982. <laughs> Christmas Hill Park in oh, Gilroy, boy. California was the start and the finish line to that Here Turkey Trot. Here we go, everybody. My dad pulled me aside before the Turkey Trot and informed uh, young uh, 11-year-old me that uh, the prize for winning my age division was, in fact, a giant turkey. And my dad said, uh, we don't have a turkey this year, son. We need you to win the turkey so that we can eat Thanksgiving dinner. I won my age division that year, and I have a photograph of myself holding a giant turkey. I have a very <laughs> worried expression on my face. Not because I won, but because when they handed me, they actually handed me the turkey. Yeah. It was frozen. And that was, uh, I believe, Thanksgiving morning when that race was happening. And so I, in that photograph, 
everybody else is happy, I'm sure, that we will be having a turkey on said year, 1982 Thanksgiving. But I know I'm already thinking, how am I going to thaw this damn thing on the way home? (laughs) You were thinking that? I could tell from the expression on my face that it wasn't exactly a joyful run for me. It looks, I know that photo, and you look relieved, actually. Yeah, because we're going to eat. Yeah. My, I don't I don't actually think we I don't know if we had a turkey or not, but I was informed go win the damn race so we can have a turkey. I think we need to circle back and ask Papa Tony about <laughs> he that. He won't remember yeah, it he right. Will. Your dad has no. an impeccable memory. Mm, he does. I, he remembers details from his baseball days. Like yeah. I could only hope to remember as much as he does when I'm seventy seven. Okay. The other thing he did is one year and I think they did this because they were kind of frugal and we lived a little rural. Yeah. Okay. We lived, we had no neighbor behind us. Yeah. Like behind our house, it was probably 20 miles before you'd run into another house. Right. It, it, there was a reservoir back there a couple miles away. Mm-hmm. There was a mountain and yeah. a lot of trees. Yeah. Like, you know, in, at my parents though, when it came time for Christmas, they had a hard time buying a Christmas tree. Mm. And so one year my dad gave me a saw and told me to climb up one of the pine trees in the backyard and top it. Was and, this the same yeah. year? Feels like it might have been the same year. Right around year. the same era. 1982. I climbed up the damn tree, <laughs> and then he was in the yard kind of watching me, and he was like, a little higher, <laughs> a little higher. And I got up higher yet, and then he's like, right about there. And so with my free hand, I had no, I was no grappling hooks. I had no ropes. With my free hand, I just reached over with the saw and began back and forth until the top of the tree came down into the yard. (laughs) My parents cleaned up that tree, put a stand on it, stuck it in the corner. But see, would you go back and do anything differently, honestly? Mm, Maybe. Do you think, I I mean, I feel like our kids just have it way too easy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but I I actually don't think it was safe for me to be up there with a saw (laughs) at age 12, climbing a 40-foot tree, telling me to top it. Just top it right there, Johnny. The other thing they used to do, like nowadays, I'll tell you what's soft. The fact that when I want to watch TV, yeah. I'm not yelling at one of the kids to climb up on the roof and move the antenna. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's asking so much just for them to go fetch the remote. Yeah, Well, they won't even do that. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly. Can't you use your phone? Lead weights in their feet. Yeah, but my my it was, this mainly happened on Sunday morning. And we had come back to the house. The 49ers were going to kick off at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. And the 1 p.m. game was usually on CBS back in the day, the NFC game. Yeah. And my dad would say, climb up on the roof. We had a one-story house still. Had a wood shake roof. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, climb up there. And he'd say, uh, I get up on the roof, and he'd say, okay, grab the antenna. Yeah. And I got two hands on this giant antenna that is like, you know, for people who don't know, that's how we used to get reception on our TVs. (laughs) You know, you you didn't have the streamer. We had the guy calling yesterday saying, I have no idea what to do with streaming. He's like, right now he's nodding, going, yep, or or he's on his roof right now Mm -hmm. getting ready for the NBA Finals. And so I'd be up on the roof, and my dad would be like, okay, you start tilting it, and I would begin to pivot the giant antenna on the roof. (laughs) Hopefully there's no lightning. And and my mom's out on the deck. She's the relay. My dad's in the living room, and he's going, a little more. A little more. Okay, no, back the other way. Back the other way. And then right there, right there. And it was just basically to get the game just so. Yeah. 
Just so. Just watchable. Yes. And you can, Was it clear? No. It no. still had a tiny bit of snow. Uh-huh. But you could see it. Like, yeah. people today would freak out. They'd be like, what's wrong with my TV? Right. You know, but it was enough. Yeah. And then we would watch it. And then years later, when I went to college, I was like, what are they doing now on Sundays? Because they only had, you only could get ABC and NBC clear. Mm. They, because the towers for ABC and NBC were closer to their house. Mm-hmm. CBS, you had to kind of... He had a Jimmy rig it. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are they doing now? And my dad said that he had a, a motor put in that replaced me when mm-hmm. I went to college. And now he could just turn a dial mm. and he could pivot that antenna Imagine that from control. his living room. He must have felt like God. Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like you're moving the house. <laughs> but I just remember, like, and maybe this is where my knee problems stem from. <laughs> After I was done with the antenna. Yeah. I, was, I didn't climb down. No, of course not. I never used a ladder to get up there in the first place. Yeah. I would climb up on the chimney, mm-hmm. and then I would pull myself up, do like a pull-up, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and get onto the roof. And the way I got down was I would go to the front of the house. We had a lawn in the front yard. Yeah. And I would just jump off that roof. Of course you did. And yeah. Onto the lawn and land on my feet like Spider-Man. Is this where we thank the good people at Reflex? Reflex. Yeah. Yeah, for fixing your knees. Knees. After all those com. leaps off your roof. All the leaps. I, it was a leap of faith. Literally. See how I did that? Um, Steven, did you have a similar experience, or did you grow up as a cable TV kid? Um, I grew up as a cable TV kid. You're lucky, man. Did you have MTV? I wasn't allowed to watch it, I don't so no, I don't think I watched it when I was well, like, younger. At some point you got yes, to watch yes, it. Yes, right? I, I did at some point. Uh, the TRL days, Carson Daly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that was me. I was right then. Y- the uh, you remember like in the summer they would do the grind or whatever that thing was. What was that house party or you know? And it was like I a bunch was on of... that show. You were on the yeah, show. Yeah, the the beach club show. Yeah, yeah. I was were you on walking that. around in a bikini on that show? I was walking around in a bikini. Yeah. Whoa. They shot it in Malibu where I went to college. Okay, so, so when you were in college. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know how we wound up on the show. Which I think my friends and I heard about it or like there was a casting call or something. So we just went. And they were like, sure, you can come here. And then we were so excited because uh, Jenny McCarthy was present yeah. and hosting. And um, and whoever sang that one, two, three, four song was Coolio. performing. Who huh? did? Coolio? Yeah, Coolio. 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 Yeah. Coolio was performing. Coolio was performing. Yes. Okay, so was it as much fun as it looked on yeah, TV? Yeah, it absolutely was. We were not acting. Were you guys sober? <laughs> Yes, we were stone cold sober. Were you ever on the show singled out with Jenny McCarthy? Because that show was great. <laughs> no. You weren't on singled no, out? Chris Hardwick? No. Mm. I wasn't dumb enough to go on that show. No. But that's one of the benefits you had of being in Malibu. Did you get paid to be on the show? I don't think so. Because they didn't have to pay anybody. You were just you just. You got were to just be delighted to be there. Yes. Meanwhile, I was watching that on TV going, you know, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Wow. See? You think you know somebody. <laughs> She does the five at five, and she's been on, what was the show, House Party? I don't even remember The Grind? No, it wasn't The Grind. Mm -hmm. It was like MTV Beach. Uh, Now I got to look it up. I don't know. I don't know. Jenny McCarthy hosted it. Okay, do you remember like when they started The Real World? Yeah, the I do. early days of the real world. Like, but, but we all watched like the maybe the first season or two, and then only the diehards stuck with it after that. We're like, we all knew Puck and yeah. those th- that yeah. set of characters. That was the only real world that existed to me. Right, and then I think Jersey Shore was kind of a <laughs> spinoff of it, really, yeah. generationally later. Yeah, but I actually think you know, people love that HBO Hard Knocks series mm-hmm. in sports. I actually think there would be a really cool like story that could be done or a show that could be done mm-hmm. 
featuring minor league baseball players. You know how the minor league players, like especially in short season A ball, yeah, they live in host homes, right? Or now they're doing Airbnbs. A lot of them. Mm-hmm. I think it would be really cool if you got like four or five players, like with the Hillsboro Hops, yes, under one roof. You film everything. Yes. You make it a reality show. You know they get a little exposure out of it, the organization. But you get you get a glimpse yeah. of minor league baseball. Oh, totally! Like the uh, yes. baseball version of Last Chance U. Right? Yes. Yeah, that's. I mean, you have to think that that's already in the works. Somewhere. Is it? It's if be. it's not, we need to stop the show right now. Yeah. We need to produce that thing in Hillsboro. Yes. Talk Let's about do it. it. All right, uh, we'll be right back with more. Now I gotta find the old episodes of those MTV shows. What was it called, Anna? The show MTV you Beach House. You were on MTV Beach House. <laughs> Thank you, no somebody. Uh, can we get like a year? Come to this show? What, like what year was it? I don't really. Well, I mean, it, it would have been between 1995 and 1999. I'll go back and watch all those episodes all tonight. Those somebody episodes. get on that. Oh, poor you. Poor you. I'll find that show. Uh, all right, we're gonna play uh, Punch and Audio. Best sound. We've got it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Baldfish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. All you have to do is find the episode that Coolio was on. That's really what you have to do. Tom Brady was asked how he'll feel with the season getting closer. Is he really out punching? Uh, relieved. I won't have Aaron Donald trying to chase me down and <laughs> knock me out. Uh, I won't have these guys that are would have gotten paid a lot of money to hit me and knock me on the ground. Um, I do have a record for being sacked more than any other quarterback in NFL history, which maybe somebody will break that record someday. But I got a lot of bumps and bruises to show for 23 great seasons. But um you know, I certainly won't miss that, but that's okay. I had an amazing experience. And again, it's time, the, the game's in great hands. It's time, you know, for other guys to do it. And, and I, you know, I saw Peyton retire. I saw all these guys that I looked up to, Brett Favre retire. Um, and, you know, now I'm just a, a, a retired NFL player and looking forward to watching these young guys uh, continue to be great, you know, uh, representatives of their teams, their communities, and of their families as they move forward in their career. All right, all right. All that stuff at the end I didn't need. But Tom Brady, Tom, you know, I think there's going to be part of him that really misses it. And I think it's partly why he had a hard time walking away. So I love that the question was asked. I love that we have the sound because I think it will be kind of a story and kind of something to think about. The NFL without Tom Brady for the first time in a couple of decades. Uh, I think it's a big deal. Uh, Brian Windhorse, ESPN, talking about the number three pick. The Blazers have the three pick. You can get a good player at three, Joel Embiid, James Harden. Here's Brian Windhorst. Punch it. At the end of the season, Damian Lillard came out and said, I don't want to play with more players who are going to take two or three years to develop. No offense to all those guys. I want to play with guys who can help me right now. The general manager, Joe Cronin, came out and said, yep, we're going to honor Dame here. We're going to make moves to acquire players that can help us right now. And then they fell backwards into the number three overall pick at the lottery. I don't even, you know, you say the number three overall pick and people say, oh, Michael Jordan. I, forget about Michael Jordan. I'm just going to talk about the last 10, 12 years. The number three picks are guys like Luka Doncic, Joel Embiid, James Harden, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. These are Hall of Fame players that are available at number three. Now, I don't know about Brandon Miller 
and Scoot Henderson. I'm not a, um, a draft expert. I haven't broken down their high school film and interviewed their high, his- <laughs> their high school history for teachers. I don't know what they're going to be. But I know that the number three pick is not something you trade for a, uh, you know, a guy who can be your third best player. I think it's why I, I believe the Blazers should keep the three pick, make the three pick, and at some point pivot. Uh, pivot with the franchise, pivot with, uh, you know, Damian Lillard using him to get what you need. I think you have a big window if you're the Blazers. There's no urgency there. But I think you make the move when the move is right to be made. Don't rush into it. But I think they have to make the pick. I think they have to use it and pick, you know, let their scouting department, let their general manager have a chance to pick the best player that they can get in this draft. Monty Williams... Phoenix Sun said he can't coach anymore. Detroit Pistons said we'll take him. Stephen A. Smith on the hiring of Monty Williams in Detroit. Punch he him. hasn't won a championship, and to be the highest-paid coach in history is kind of shocking. But if anybody deserves that kind of investment, it's Monty Williams. He's a two-time NBA mm-hmm. Coaches Association Coach of the Year. He's a one-time Coach of the Year in 2021-2022 season. He took the Phoenix Suns to an NBA Finals. He's a leader of men in the bubble before they went to the conference final. Before they went to the NBA Finals, remember, they had won eight straight games in the bubble yeah. um, in Orlando. And that was really an indication of things to come. He's a wonderful leader. He's an incredible role model. And to have such a young squad, you mm-hmm. definitely want somebody like him leading them into the future. It's a worthy investment by the Detroit Pistons. Well, it, you could talk X's and O's, but we all know it's Jimmy's and Joe's that get it done. Detroit's got to have more talent. Monty Williams is leaving a Phoenix team that had a whole bunch of talent. He's going to Detroit, becomes the highest paid coach ever. I don't think this is about never having won a championship. I think it's about Detroit looking for some credibility and a coach that can uh, you know, coach them into their future. J.D. Pickle talking about Oregon State. Is this all on DJ Uyunglele, the quarterback at Oregon State, the transfer quarterback? J.D. thinks so. Punch it. The other part of this is he's not walking into an operational Oregon State that's like trying to make a bowl game. He's not walking into a team at Oregon State that's still trying to figure out who they are. Like, they won 10 games last year. They won 10 games last year. They're in operation. Yeah, they lost a lot on defense, sure. But I still think Oregon State is pretty dangerous. And... A lot of it rides with DJ Uyunglele. Because if they take a step backwards, regardless of the other positions they lost, what's the blame going to be? Hey, DJ, you came to Oregon State, and we had a good thing going, and then it went off the rails when he got here. Regardless of how it looks, I understand. Regardless of if he has no help on the O-line, and the defense gives up 40 a game, people are going to point the finger at DJ Uyunglele and say, you're the reason why we fell off the train tracks. Is it fair? No. But that's what, that's what happens when you play quarterback in college football. You get a lot of the praise, get a lot of the blame. I don't agree at all. I think there's some pressure on DJ. I think the pressure, though, is created by the idea that there are high hopes and expectations. But Oregon State won 10 games with Ben Gulbrinson at quarterback. They've got Ben Gulbrinson back. I, I, don't, I fail to see where like this would be a DJ problem if they take a step backwards. Oregon State has not been quarterback-centric in a quarterback-centric game. I think they not only have DJ... They've got Aiden Childs. They've got a Ben Gulbrinson who's supposed to be a little better. I think the pressure really is on the coaching staff at Oregon State. I think they've got a good staff. They've fostered continuity. Defensively, even though they have given up a whole bunch of experience and leadership, 
I think this season will be a little bit forgiving with the non-conference schedule. I think they have a chance with uh, you know their non-conference slate to go 3-0. and And they really don't get, I think, a true test until week five when they host Utah. And again, they host Utah. They got Utah at home. I just think Oregon State will run the football. I have faith and confidence that Jonathan Smith will start the best quarterback that he can possibly start. But I think this is one of these things you say in the offseason. And and I think the national media, who maybe didn't pay close attention to how Oregon State won 10 games a year ago, will look at DJ and put that pressure on him because that's what you do in the offseason with a high-profile transfer. Let's talk about the Denver Nuggets. Tim Lager says Nikola Jokic is the most decisive player he's ever seen. What does he mean? Punch it. This is the most decisive basketball player I've ever seen. And basketball is based on a series of decisions, one after another, uh-huh. in rapid speed. Nobody makes them quicker or more correctly more often than Nikola Jokic. Everything he does has decisive. a purpose. Everything has a purpose. There's no wasted motion, mm-hmm. no wasted decisions. The ball goes on to the next place that it's supposed to be, and he okay. just has this credible ability to, to have multiple options at his disposal because of his vision, his IQ, and then his, his passing ability. Is that true? Decisive? I, I, I've never quite heard it pronounced or said that way. Most decisive player in the NBA, Stephen? Um, I don't know if decisive is the word I would use. I might use the word unselfish. Because the what he does is when other guys are going, he doesn't necessarily force shots up. And I think when Legler says he's decisive, it's he's always making the right basketball play. So, you know, smart. Yes, he's a very smart player because he always is making the right play. He's never going to force a shot or force a play no matter what he wants. Like, he's going to read the defense and go with it. So, I mean, he may be right with a decisive. Um, I just would probably use the word unselfish because he's all about what's best for the team in that play. He doesn't care what the situation is. He's going to make the right play no matter what. Sam Acho talking about Colorado football. Punch I'm going to go Colorado, and the reason why is, I mean, we don't know what Colorado is going to look like, but we will find out very soon. Week one, national TV, primetime TV, Colorado plays TCU. TCU, the team that was just in the national championship game last year. That's week one. Then number two, week two, you go and play Nebraska, which sure, they're in a rebuild. That's another primetime game. Now, this is early in the season. Later on, they got Oregon, they got USC, so maybe some realizations that come then. But, man, what if you could surprise a TCU team? Team that no longer has Quentin Johnston, no longer has Mass Duggan, and you put yourself officially on the map. Look, I, I disagree a little bit, and then part of it is, Anna, let's kick this around. I was talking to somebody today who said, do you think all of the Pac-12 coaches are circling Colorado as the game they can't wait to play? Hmm. Meaning they've had to recruit against all this hype, they've heard all the noise, it's a cute story. But you, we all know you win games with depth on the offensive and defensive line. But I kind of wonder: Does Utah, does Oregon, does USC have they heard it? Have they heard enough of the hype of Colorado to circle that game and go, All right, "We'll deal with that." Mm-hmm. I I would think that that might be a strong motivator for them. Yeah. Uh, there's a little something extra there, right? Yeah. And yes, I mean, I celebrate actually Colorado doing what it's doing. Yes. If you're Colorado, yeah, totally. you are proud of yourself for making this decision and you're getting talked about in ways that you have not before. But 
there is a price that comes with that. You know what comes with exposure? You sometimes get exposed. Uh, we'll talk about it on tomorrow's show. We'll dive deep on Colorado on tomorrow's show. Have some fun out there, especially if you're doing a fun run.